suddenly got very quiet. I think that's my cue to start. So good to see everybody. My name is Ken Weinstein, and I'm honored to be able to uh, chair today's event. And uh, good to see everybody. Today we're going to spend a number of hours talking about biological attribution, challenges and solutions. And this is, of course, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. And um, proud to be up here with my colleagues, who are all going to introduce themselves in a minute. Um, but before I get started, uh, before we get started, I first want to recognize Alice Hill, who is um, over here. We'd love to have you come on up for a second. Alice is with the, the Hoover Institution, and they have very kindly allowed us to use this wonderful space uh, and work very closely with us, arranging today's um, event. So, Alice, on behalf of the whole panel, I want to say thank you very much for your efforts and your, your friendship and coordination on this, and um, love to have you make a few remarks, if you would. Sure. Uh, I just want to say welcome to the Hoover Institution, and we are very honored to be hosting the Blue Ribbon Study Panel. Uh, I came into contact with this really excellent group of people when I was at the White House, and they were not my first choice. They were Dick Cheney's call for me. Okay, well, thank you very much. Very kind of you, and um, uh, this is a great crowd. So let me go ahead and start off first. Uh, as you know, the, we have the ex officio members uh, over to our left, and Asha and Ellen. Uh, special thanks to Asha for really carrying a lot of the weight, putting this thing together today, and uh, done a great job. And thank you to both of you for all your great work. Uh, you've really been the ones to make the panel tick, uh, and also to the, the ex officio members as well. Um, let me go ahead and just give a bit of a teaser about um, the topic that we're addressing today, and that is attribution, uh, attribution in the context of biodefense. And now we've been up and running now for, what, two years? Three. Oh, three. See? <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Um, but we have been looking at biodefense and the bio threat from numerous angles, and it's been eye-opening for me, uh, somebody who's spent his career in law enforcement and intelligence community, but didn't and spent some time working in the bio area. But I tell you, um, this has been an education into the uh, into a serious threat, uh, the various dimensions of the threat, the various uh, avenues of response to the threat, and um, you know, taking a sort of a clear-eyed view of what the government has done and hasn't done to meet that threat. And um, it's been uh, it's been an education and a very serious one in the sense that. Um, if anything, our message has been uh, this is a very serious threat and it's one that we need to wrestle with. Uh, it's one that the government needs to pay a lot of attention to, not just in terms of moving boxes around the org chart, not just in, in terms of throwing a little funding at it, but in terms of really focusing on the threat 
and seeing how we can both prevent the threat from materializing and then responding to it if it does. Um, and um, one of the dimensions is attribution. And attribution is simply simply that. It's being able to, in the aftermath of some kind of bio-attack, and that's if we're talking about bio-attack here as opposed to naturally occurring, um, identifying what the, uh, the uh, bio, biological agent is, where it came from, and then who might have been behind its creation and dissemination. Uh, just the same kind of thing that myself as a longtime prosecutor and other prosecutors and law enforcement folks, some of whom you're going to hear from today, have spent their careers doing, whether it's attribution you know, with a uh, fingerprint or attribution with a, a, a shell casing from a gun that identifies who the shooter was and where the shooting happened. Same kind of idea in the biodefense area. And that's critical not only for prosecution as a response to a bio-attack, but also just for national decision-makers in calibrating and deciding how they're going to respond to a biotech, especially if it's one that comes from a state actor. And it all comes back to the ability to attribute the, um, the biological agent and attribute it to a particular um, wrongdoer. And if you think about it, you look across the spectrum of weapons of mass destruction, uh, there's been a good bit of thought put into how to do this in the radiological and in the nuclear area. I mean, there's a law that talks about this. There's been a lot of thought, protocols put in place, practiced and the like in the government so that if there were to be a radiological or, or nuclear event of some kind, an attack, there, you know, everybody in the government knows who's responsible for each aspect of the attribution process and the response process down to the very you know, every position is identified as to who's going to do what, even down to the point that the person, you know, you know who it is who would brief the president on that very issue. That's not the case in the biodefense realm. And we talked about this issue in our 2015 report, the Blueprint for Biodefense, and we raised the concerns that not enough has been done in the attribution area for uh, biodefense, and little has changed since then. That's one of the recommendations or concerns that we flagged that has really not gotten um, a lot of traction in terms of response to it. And so our hope today is that with the help of the experts um, who we're going to have here today, that we can help the current administration and um, the, the federal government, and for that matter, our partner, state and local partners, uh, figure this issue out and think about how we can better uh, put a process in place that better and more quickly can identify the wrongdoers in the case of a bio-attack, which is something that um, is sadly and soberingly enough, is, uh, is a real threat. So that's our purpose today. And let me uh, first, before we get into the panels, I want to turn over to my colleagues. We're very fortunate to have um, some, uh, some of America's greatest public servants on this panel. And two of them are up here with me today. And let me first turn to Senator Daschle uh, for your remarks. Well, Ken, thank you very much. Uh, you've, I think, eloquently laid out what our challenge is today and our purpose in getting together. And like you, I want to thank Hoover and, and certainly uh, Asha and Ellen for all of the good work that they've uh, done to prepare us for this important discussion. And uh, as always, I thank Joe Lieberman for his extraordinary leadership on this, this panel. It's been my pleasure to work with him for decades. And it's no, uh, no accident that he's here again today, even though this is not uh, an area that, uh, that he originally, uh, uh, like me, knew much about. I've been affected 
a great deal by the whole question of attribution, in part because of personal experience. Uh, it was 16 years ago, uh, this month actually, uh, that we had the horrific anthrax attack in my office. And uh, we went through a, a very traumatic time. And uh, I'm, um, uh, I'm very cognizant of how relevant that experience is to today's discussion. I would say that as horrific as that whole experience was, what's troubling to me is is the aftermath and the lack of our capacity for attribution, frankly. We did a lot of the things you'd expect. We had investigations and we had decontamination and we had environmental remediation and we had uh, medical prophylactics and we did all of those things. Uh, we had a plan but we realized quickly that we had no capacity in large measure because we lacked the science and technology to follow through with that plan. And so over the last 16 years, I think we've made progress on microbiology and we can look back with maybe some satisfaction. But the fact is that we have a long way to go, uh, a long way to go with regard to forensics, a long way to go with regard to biological attribution and and, uh, and the challenges remain, even though it's now been 16 years. And so the purpose today is really to take some of the best minds that we have in the country, literally, and to think through just how we might move the needle and how we might address these challenges more effectively. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion and uh, thoughtfully thinking how we might make uh, even more concrete recommendations on on how to address this issue more effectively going forward. Uh, <clears throat> thanks very much, Ken. Uh, Tom, thanks for your kind words. And I know that you and I both agree uh, that even though we've known each other for decades, we remain very young. <laughs> at, at heart, relatively speaking. Uh, welcome uh, to, uh, to everybody. And a particular thanks in my role as co-chair of the Blue Ribbon study uh, panel on biodefense with uh, Tom Ridge, former governor, former uh, secretary of Homeland Security, uh, um, to uh, Ken and Tom for seizing the initiative uh, on this hearing and really preparing uh, along w with the help, obviously, of Ash and Ellen. Um, uh, uh, excellent uh, uh, hearing today. Uh, I'm glad to be here, frankly, just to learn. I've, I've been engaged uh, by this subject. I'm going to take about a minute to just explain to those who don't know, what, what is the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense? It was not created uh, by either the executive branch of government or by Congress. Uh, it was uh, motivated by some people who felt that, um, just as Tom has just said, that uh, we reacted in, in um, some ways that were consequential uh, to the events of 9-11 and other events. Um, but we had not yet done enough that the federal government, government was spending a lot of money on uh, uh, defense against uh, both bio, a bioterrorist attack, but also the related problem, which we will only coincidentally touch on today, I guess, of uh, an infectious disease epidemic or pandemic, which can uh, kill enormous numbers of people. You know, we're, we're approaching the 100th anniversary, and you'll be hearing about this a lot, I'm sure, of the flu epidemic of 1918, uh, in which the estimates are that 
50 to 100 million people died. I mean, it was, and that was before we were all traveling as much as we are today and all the rest. And, and anyway, we've, we've made a, a couple of, uh, we've issued a couple of reports. So uh, the people who were concerned about this came to Tom Ridge and me. They went to some funders and said, we really need a, 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 a small bipartisan group to get together and review where we are and um, make nonpartisan proposals on this, which is what we've been about. The, this uh, panel of ours is quite small. It's, it's the three of us plus uh, Donna Shalala, uh, former secretary of HHS, um, uh, Tom Ridge, who I mentioned, and Jim Greenwood, who was a former member of Congress, now the head of the uh, bio organization. And um, uh, so, so we're here as part of that. Uh, I'm really interested in the subject matter uh, insofar as it helps us to determine as quickly as we can perhaps in the first instance, so it's not directly on point whether we're dealing with a, a, a naturally occurring infectious disease outbreak or uh, a bioterrorist attack, but more to the point of a bioterrorist attack, this not only has the normal uh, criminal law implications of uh, finding out who did it so you can punish uh, uh, that person or persons and therefore deter the next group from doing it, but obviously, if it's a genuine bioterrorist attack against uh, the United States, it has um, um, the most profound implications for our um, foreign policy and our national security policy. And um, one could imagine if you can, uh, the attribution is important if nobody's claiming credit, neither a, a state or a non-state actor attribution is important to determine what the response of the United States um, will be. Uh, there, are, there are really um, uh, important questions that I think have not been answered for biological weapons, as Ken said, as they have been for uh, nuclear weapons. For instance, at what point and how would the National uh, Command Authority uh, be engaged? How, how, how long do we wait until the D Department of defense moves if it's uh, decided that this was an act of war. These are really serious questions, and, and, and I'm afraid to say, and, and you all know it because my guess is you're at least as informed as we are on these subjects, uh, th this threat is not diminishing. Um, the, at least Russia is known to continue to have a biological weapons program. Uh, there are other um, a, a gallery of the normal uh, rogue states enemies like Iran, uh, North Korea, um, which also are suspected of have a Syria of having an active uh, chemical weapons program. In the case of Syria, we're no longer suspecting since we know that Assad has used uh, uh, chemical weapons in recent um, years. And uh, we also know from open sources that uh, terrorist groups like the Islamic State are working on uh, bio developing biological weapons. So this is a real and clear and present danger. And the, 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 the subject of attribution, which seems highly technical, perhaps legalistic, uh, and maybe it is both of those, is critically important in um, enabling our government and our legal system to um, put together 
a rational response to such an attack. So uh, thanks again to uh, Ken and Tom for organizing this hearing. Thanks to the extraordinary group of witnesses we're going to have. And I, I just look forward to continuing my education in this critical uh, national subject matter. Thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Mr. Lehman, Senator National. Okay, why don't we go ahead and call up the first panel, and that's uh, Dr. Jerry Parker, our, uh, our next Fiscio member, Nicholas Dunaway, and Supervisory Special Agent Ed Yu. Um, let me just say this uh, first. We originally were scheduled to have Su Representative Susan Brooks um, testify at the outset of the, the meeting. She, at the last minute, had some emergency committee business that required her to be up on the Hill this morning. She had a center regrets, which is too bad on a number of levels. Um, a, she's a, a tireless champion of uh, biodefense, and she's we spent a lot of time working with her and her staff, but her individually. Uh, secondly, she's a former prosecutor, U.S. attorney for many years, so she really knows this attribution area and, and understands it. And, uh, and third, she's an old friend. We were U.S. attorneys together, and so very much looking forward to having her here, and she regrets not being here, but I can assure you that she remains very active in this space and a really important force up on Capitol Hill. So uh, let me give a, a quick, um, just very quick bio to each of our panelists. Thank you for being here today. Uh, first, on my far right, uh, Dr. Jerry Parker. He's an ex officio member of the panel here. He's uh, currently the director of the Institute for Infectious Animal Diseases at Texas A&M. He's a uh, former commander and deputy commander of the U.S. Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and held a variety of positions at DHS, principal deputy assistant secretary for preparedness and response at HHS, and um, deputy assistant secretary of defense for chemical and biological defense at DOD. So he's been pretty much everywhere he is. Uh, a true expert, and um, in fact, Jerry and I testified together. The two of us were up on a panel being asked very specific questions. He'd get asked a very specific question. He'd have this encyclopedic response. He'd walk through it as though it was a doctoral thesis. Then they'd ask me the same question, and I'd just say, whatever he said. <laughs> and um, so it's nice to be able to testify with somebody like that. Uh, Nicholas Dunaway, uh, good to see you. He is currently with Inspirion and is a uh, well-known well expert in the uh, area of biosecurity and cybersecurity, former FBI special agent working in weapons of mass destruction. Uh, he's led a number of biological chemical WMD investigations and that resulted in apprehensions of the, of the wrongdoers, uh, people who either did or were um, conspiring to use biological material or chemical material to cause damage to others and people who trafficked in those areas. Uh, so he'll be able to speak um, uh, about his expertise, both from within the government and outside the government. And then we have uh, current special agent, Supervisory Special Agent Ed Yu. Good to see you. He is the Supervisory Special Agent in the FBI's Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate, which was stood up maybe a dozen years ago or so after 9-11, correct? Uh, and he's in the Biological Countermeasures Unit, so he's the perfect man to talk about this area. Uh, and he has deep experience as an FBI agent, well-trained in all areas of, um, of attribution, in other words, investigation and forensic work, but specifically uh, has expertise that's specifically uh, applicable to today's topic. So thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. And I will start, oh, let's just start on the right, if that's okay. Well, thank you and good morning. And um, 
um, since I'm the first speaker, I take it on as a, my responsibility to begin to kind of set set the stage for the for the discussion and, and debates of the day. So, um, Honorable Weinstein, Senator Daschle, and Senator Lieberman, and my esteemed panelists, thank you for inviting me to participate in this meeting of the Biodefense Blue Ribbon Panel. I am honored to be here with you today and to share my experiences on the evolving biological threats and the importance of attribution. As the panel is well aware of, naturally occurring and man-made biological threats pose a grave risk to our health and national security. Globalization, population growth, urbanization, and other factors are creating the perfect storm for the emergence of high-consequence infectious diseases. But a terrorism nexus also exists in many of these same global disease hotspots and together are changing the nature of biological risk. This is exacerbated by the diffusion of technical expertise coupled with the biotechnology revolution, drastically increasing the threat of bioterrorism. New technologies have decreased resources and financial requirements for entry and increased capabilities that could be misused by a determined bioterrorist. The panel previously identified the need to strengthen infectious disease surveillance and laboratory capabilities to detect threats early. Similarly, we need core microbial forensic laboratory capabilities to enable attribution. For my part, I've been involved in biodefense since 1982 to the present, from the Cold War to the rise of violent extremism and now the increasing frequency of emerging infectious diseases with pandemic potential. I feel as though I've been at the eye of the storm, witnessing the evolving biological threats over my career. Today, I'm more concerned than ever about the risk of biological threats, whether from outbreaks, accidents, or attacks, and, need, and the need to underpin no regret this attribution decisions with a sound scientific foundation in microbial forensics. The anthrax letter attacks marked the first significant act of bioterrorism in the United States. That attack was one of the easiest bioterror attacks to confront, yet the impact was far-reaching. As bad as it was, it could have been much worse had the pathogen involved been a contagious agent, resistant to antibiotics, an unknown pathogen, or delivered in a covert widespread aerosol attack across multiple jurisdictions. As it was, the anthrax letter shut down the Hart Senate building for three months, wreaked havoc on the U.S. postal system, reduced business productivity, cost the nation more than $1 billion, and tragically took the lives of five and sickened 17 more. More than 30,000 people required post-exposure antibiotics. And I suspect that several in this room today are now recalling the frightening moments some of us experienced during that time. This event also forever changed our notions of laboratory biosecurity, biosafety, and personal reliability in the biological sciences. And the emerging science of microbial forensics and an understanding of its importance was greatly accelerated. The follow-on FBI Amerithrax investigation applied this emerging science of microbial forensics. And along, with, and along with traditional investigative procedures, 
ultimately attributed the attack to a lone U.S. scientist. Attribution determines who was responsible for an attack, whether a crime, act of terror, or warfare is essential to hold those responsible accountable for their actions, prevent future attacks, and serve as a deterrent. Attribution and the supporting microbial forensic sciences are also important to exonerate and rule out suspected perpetrators, whether a nation state, terror group, or criminal that is innocent. The stakes could be very high, particularly when a nation state is involved or suspected. Any rush to judgment before the science and evidence are in should be avoided. Decisions to attribute especially a nation state, will be consequential, no regret decisions that must be guided by strong scientific and evidentiary foundation. It is similarly important to differentiate a naturally occurring infectious disease outbreak from an attack. It may not be readily apparent that an outbreak was natural or due to an intentional cause at the first sign of disease, or even after an outbreak has run its course whether in people or animals. Prior to 911 and the anthrax letter attacks, scientists and operators from the FBI, the CDC, and DOD had already begun establishing needed protocols to enable collaboration to account for public health and law enforcement requirements for sample collection and analysis, and initiated what we now know today as the science of microbial forensics. This same group also began planning for unique laboratory capabilities and the scientists that would be needed to support attribution, whether for an attack, accident, or outbreak, and to uncover and document illicit proliferation activities. Several of those visionary practitioners and pioneers are in this room today or will be with us later today. The facilities envisioned then and soon after the anthrax attacks include the laboratory that was subsequently constructed and in use today at Fort Detrick, the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center, or MBAC. I cannot overstate the importance of having dedicated core laboratory capabilities and the scientists that are focused on microbial forensics to support attribution. It is not a part-time job or other duties as assigned function. Microbial forensics is still and will always be an evolving science, perhaps not well understood outside of the relatively few professionals in their field, but prosecutors and national command authorities who will one day be thrust into the position of making no regret attribution decisions will quickly grasp the importance of microbial forensics as essential to underpinning their pending difficult decisions. The science of microbial forensics will only get more complex with the continued rapid advancement of new biotechnology tools that are readily available as, and as new science examples evolve uh, uh, of dual use research concern emerge from our scientific enterprise that could be, be misused for harm. A recent example is a report by Canadian scientists of the synthesis of horsepox. There was considerable thought that went into the establishment of the MBAC laboratory to support law enforcement and national security attribution. 
To my knowledge, those original planning assumptions have not substantially changed. I strongly recommend that those strategies and needed capabilities are not abandoned. I will close with two hypothetical but plausible scenarios to consider. The first involved, involves the Korean Peninsula. A hypothetical covert and a hypothetical covert aerosol release of a bioterror pathogen in the Seoul subway. This scenario was explored through the ABLE response exercise series a few years ago in the Republic of Korea. I will leave it to you to consider the potential perpetrators and the importance of attribution to either rule in or rule out suspect criminals, terror groups, or nation states and the magnitude of no grant decisions for this scenario. The second is a recent quote from Bill Gates at the Munich Security Summit where he said, a genetically engineered virus is easier to make and could kill more people than nuclear weapons. The next epidemic could originate on a computer screen. Whether naturally occurring or bioterror attack, an outbreak could, could kill tens of millions in the near future unless governments prepare the same way we prepare for war. In terms of attribution, isn't a national security standard the one we apply to maintain and continually evolve our national nuclear attribution capabilities? Should that same national security standard and priority be applied to biological attribution? Given the magnitude of the consequences of the threat and no grant decisions that will be needed, I believe the answer is yes. Thank you for the opportunity to appear on this panel today. I will be happy to address your questions. Okay, thanks, Mr. Parker. Mr. Dunaway. <clears throat> I want to thank the panel for giving me the privilege to speak in today. Also, thank you very much for arranging me to speak today. I want to spend my time speaking on a specific issue of which I had direct uh, experience with as a special agent in the FBI. Uh, before I begin, um, as was mentioned previously, uh, I served as a special agent uh, in the New Jersey division of the FBI where I worked violent crime, domestic international terrorism, but spent the majority of my time as a WMD investigator in the New Jersey division, uh, focused on biological WMD uh, primarily. <clears throat> While serving in that capacity, uh, I was the lead investigator on a multi-agency HSI, FBI, multinational investigation involving uh, the use of technology that I had previously been unaware uh, of, that specifically being the convergence of cybersecurity and biological security matters, when specifically the use of the dark net or dark web as it's sometimes referred uh, to proliferate biological material. Before I begin uh, getting into the details of that investigation, uh, give a little background uh, on the technology behind the dark net. Uh, the primary technology associated with this is called Tor. Uh, it was a uh, network protocol and software developed by the US government uh, initially and then eventually provided to the public for further development. Uh, Tor allows users to communicate uh, via web chat and other communication methods as well as to visit websites anonymously by utilizing a network of devices uh, using the Tor protocols called nodes. In essence, 
the data is traverses from node to node, uh, being layered in encryption, anonymizing further. It's often referred to as the onion router network because it gets layered in, in, in layers of encryption like an onion. The net result is when a user goes to the website they're wishing to visit, that website will not see their IP address, will not see identifying information of the user. They're, they're obfuscated. Along with this use, Tor allows for the uh, creation and maintenance of hidden services. And a hidden service is, is in essence a website or web service that utilizes the Tor network and uh, is only accessible by users who use the Tor protocols. So you couldn't go to a hidden service uh, like you can on the, on the internet, type google.com and go there. Uh, it's, it's a gibberish URL and you can only access these sites if you're using this software. Uh, has built into it this anonymizing nature of the protocol in, in it. Now while there's certainly legitimate uses for this software, it was developed by the US government with those in mind, uh, our concern has been with the security issues associated with illicit use of these marketplaces. Uh, and there has been numerous marketplaces that have uh, sprung up for those purposes. Most famous, as I'm sure many of you are aware of, is the Silk Road marketplace, which was the subject of a major FBI investigation uh, out of the New York office. <coughs> uh, <coughs> These sites, I, I, I want to stress for those that haven't been to them, many of these sites are crafted to be very similar to uh, consumer websites like eBay and Amazon. Uh, there really are a, a one-stop shop for uh, purchasing these types of illicit goods and services. Uh, many of them go so far as to have user or seller review uh, portions just like Amazon where you could, you could see that this, this purveyor it actually has good feedback so you know that there's somebody you want to purchase for. These sites uh, host sellers willing to anonymously provide narcotics, stolen goods, cyber malware, uh, hacking services and identity theft services, including corporate espionage and sabotage services, weapons, and as was the subject of the investigation I led, uh, but deadly biological materials. Now, my investigation focused on a specific marketplace, uh, now defunct, titled Black Market Reloaded. Uh, we were focused on the specific seller who was purporting to provide ricin and abrin to those that would purchase it. Uh, and this user, this seller, excuse me, went so far as to provide instructions to their, to their customers on how to tailor the material to uh, kill their victim. Uh, most worryingly to us, as we became aware of this individual, there appeared to be indications through those uh, seller reviews that they had already sold material uh, online. And so we were really up against the clock trying to uh, find this individual uh, and apprehend them. <coughs> now while there's certainly attempts by the government and there was in our case to achieve technical solutions for attribution and identification of individuals using these types of technologies, there are factors that in my experience often make the use of those technical means unusable if they exist at all. I'll mention those in, a, in, in my parting thoughts. But suffice to say, technical solutions were not the resolution for our investigation. It was traditional, old-fashioned investigations, including undercover operations. <clears throat> our, our big break didn't come from any sophisticated operation, in fact. Uh, but quite frankly, it came when our uh, subject made a mistake, as is often the case. Uh, as I often said, all the preparation in the world cannot compare to when your 
subject of your investigation does something stupid. And uh, as, as we all are aware, it's sometimes better to be lucky than good. And in our case, I think it was a little bit of both. Nevertheless, uh, we were able to identify the individual. And once we did so, we were able to apprehend arrest and through their cooperation subsequent to, to arrest, uh, interdict all of the toxins that were sold. And there were many sold after uh, prior to our involvement. But fortunately, we were able to interdict those and with uh, partnership with our international law enforcement agencies, we're able to uh, facilitate several arrests of individuals who had purchased the material uh, with intent to commit uh, harm, including uh, one individual who's attempting to commit murder. <coughs> our subject subsequently was convicted and is serving a nine-year sentence. So I'd like to uh, part with you with just a few points that I take with me from, from that experience. First, as I had mentioned, uh, while there is and should be efforts by the U.S. government to achieve technical solutions to uh, attribution and identification of individuals using these types of technologies, in my experience, the, these solutions will generally be classified and maintained for the highest level of national security matters. This leaves a gap for non-national security issues that I, I believe needs to be addressed um, that is currently uh, not being done to the level that it should be. Second, and as I think everybody here is well aware, if there's money to be made from a type of activity, somebody's going to do it. As the U.S. government and many other governments identify and take down these sites, as was done with Silk Road, Silk Road does not exist now, Black Market Reloaded was taken down after our investigation, as well as several others, quite simply another site just comes up. Uh, just yesterday, in refreshing my research for, for this presentation, I was within 15 minutes of, of surfing the dark net, able to find numerous sites purporting to sell the types of materials we're talking about. So this whack-a-mole approach cannot be the only approach that we take. There needs to be developed additional methods and, 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 and concepts on how to tackle this issue. And, and lastly, uh, I want to end with question that I get often when I present this type of information. I, 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 I received it often when presenting to uh, FBI management at headquarters. What keeps you up at night? That was, asked, that, that was the number one question I was asked. Uh, what keeps me up at night is not the types of individuals that, I'm, that we identified in this investigation. The, the, the people that keep me up at night are those that don't make mistakes. The people that are disciplined, that understand the technology, cyber technology and biological technology and that would look to use it to cause harm to others or, in the case of our investigation, to make money off those that would. As we continue to see the convergence of cybersecurity and just cyber matters along with biological security matters with uh, genetic engineering, synthetic biology, biotechnology, they are converging into one spot. I believe that by identifying lessons learned from the cybersecurity realms over the last many decades, we can jumpstart many of the principles that will aid our addressing what we're calling cyber biosecurity. Um, to that end, uh, myself and my team at Inspirion Biosciences are partnering with Dr. Randy Murch, who I know is speaking later in the day, uh, and several others to begin development of an initiative uh, to develop this principle of cyber biosecurity so that we can begin formalizing this approach. I want to thank the panel for your time and uh, be happy to answer any other questions. Okay, thanks very much, Agent Hugh.
So good morning. Um, I would like to thank the distinguished panel and the staff members for the invitation. It's a privilege to be here before you all. Um, and I have the advantage of going last, um, so I've set up very nicely. Um, so very quickly, um, I'm part of the Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate within the FBI, and as was mentioned, it was born out of the events of 9-11 and the anthrax mailings. And um, as I was already mentioned, the true cornerstone of the program to um, support our mission in looking at prevention, detection, and response in countering WMDs is actually a specific position within the FBI called the Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator, the WMD Coordinator. So for your um, understanding, these are special agents, uh, men and women that are trained in chemical, biological, and radiological nuclear matters. They're, the force is, is that there's at least one stationed in each of our 56 field offices in, across the U.S. We also have some stationed internationally. And the important part they play is they're a linchpin in establishing partnerships and relationships with state and local law enforcement, with public health. And so that on the front end, they have these um, notification procedures in place. And so as was mentioned, the challenges is that if there ever was an incident, an, an unusual outbreak of some kind, then you have um, law enforcement facilitating at the, at, in real time um, communications with public health to determine rapidly, is this a naturally occurring event or is this intentional? So these were born out of the lessons learned from the, the anthrax investigations and formed very important partnerships with public health through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I also like to note that we launched an, uh, a similar version for the animal and plant health investigations when, and worked with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So bear in mind, bio is not just human health, but we're also looking at the animal and plant aspects too, which also has huge economic impact and, and may pose a national security um, aspect as well too. Um, as I was also mentioned, uh, biotechnology is taking us to some very powerful places now. Um, we're able to synthesize manufactured DNA very efficiently. Um, and you mentioned the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, the influenza virus. Theoretically speaking, uh, you can order and have that virus synthesized, the genetics of it, for less than $1,000 today. Um, so inordinate uh, leaps in capabilities with the dramatic drops in cost as well, too. Um, but here is where the important part of the, the program, the WD coordinator pay, plays as well, is that they are a force multiplier in actually reaching out to some of the sectors that are delving into this biotech space, ranging from universities and companies all the way down to the garage biohackers, the do-it-yourself bio community. The goal is to raise their level of situational awareness, security awareness, so that if on the front end, as, as Mr. Dunaway mentioned, there's a misstep or uh, identification of suspicious activity, then who better to identify that than the community members themselves for a potential misuse, abuse, or exploitation of the technologies out there, and then have an identified body, the WD coordinator program, to report that. So it gives us a more lead time in identifying suspicious activities and making sure that the, the subsequent response is uh, commensurate. I also want to take this opportunity to expand. Um, that's the current state of play and where the future lies, too. Um, I'm going to uh, let my colleague from the laboratory division, uh, Doug Anders, who will be speaking later today, to talk focus on the forensics and attribution. But it was already alluded that we are looking at a specific convergence in the life sciences where we're looking at computer science, engineering, different these different applications all uh, becoming multidisciplinary in its effect. And if you look at the myriad of applications that are coming through, there's one thing that's in common is that they're all very much going to be data dependent. And a clear-cut example of that is the Precision Medicine Initiative that you may be familiar with. It really is leveraging 
your health history, your family history, your genetics, and combining that together to determine what your current medical state would be, or if you fall into a, a disease state, how do you tailor uh, the, the, uh, the treatments for that, and whether it be designing medications uh, and things of that nature. That's the wave of the future. It's going to be developing all that information, generating it, and then coming up with the, the uh, proper therapeutics. That's going to be the name of the game. The problem here, though, is that, in, again, it's very important that we have biodefense focusing and historically has always been on the dangerous viruses, bacteria, and toxins. But where the cyber realm is taking us, we've rendered ourselves vulnerable to this other aspect. So what do I mean by that? A good example is uh, there is a Chinese-based uh, DNA sequencing company that has met all the U.S. regulations that are required for compliance when it comes to privacy. But as a result of that, the entire state of California is looking at outsourcing genetic testing to this Chinese firm. So from a privacy standpoint, it makes sense. But from a, I would assume that you would look at on the face value, the security implications are problematic. Um, and this is happening across the board. Um, but for our lack of vision, we're not understanding what the data that we're looking at today, whether it be the, the OPM hacks or looking at the health insurance intrusions or looking at who we are contracting or partnering with to outsource uh, the, the genetic testing among other things. We're not looking at that. We're also not looking at the fact that there are foreign actors, companies that are actually coming into the U.S. and buying, purchasing, outright acquiring companies that have taps into U.S. person's health information or medical history or genetic information. So we don't know how much uh, we're hemorrhaging uh, uh, how much of our data is being exfiltrated um, internationally. So the challenge is, is that because we've been so focused on one element, which is very important, the, and the, the panel has been focused on that, but the challenge for us is that how do we expand the aperture and will be determined to be a biological threat? Um, our program uh, partnered with the National Academy of Sciences, and we hosted a series of workshops where we brought in experts from the cyber field as well as the bio field to look at what this future looks like. And some of the comments from the expert participants were, we don't know how bad this is going to be for us. And as it stands right now, there is no single point in the U.S. government that looks at biosecurity or this future bioeconomy and what the security implications are. Because if you think about it, the nightmare scenario is that if an actor like China is acquiring all this information about us at a population scale, then, and I, I, I apologize for the crassness of this, but the security consideration here is not just the, 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 um, the weapon aspects of it, but we may end up becoming um, healthcare crack addicts and China becomes a pusher or some other actor internationally becomes we become completely dependent upon them for the very things that the, pan the panel's been trying to address as far as solutions are concerned. So does that in and of itself become a vulnerability? So there's one angle. And th the other recommendation is that all of our um, infrastructure as a setup right now, it is almost a Cold War era aspect where we're looking at specific biological weapons. Whereas if you look at the bioeconomy standpoint, it's not just the health angle, but it's looking at the U.S.'s um, economic standing. How does this impact our foreign relations? How does this impact our existing trade agreements, where everything is focused on finished uh, uh, intellectual property or licensed products, where the data is therapeutics or drugs that have not yet been realized yet? So it's a really a, 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 a short-sightedness um, in this angle. Um, and also to kind of put it into uh, contrast, um, 
President Obama, the Obama administration launched the Precision Medicine Initiative where we're trying to um, leverage all, acquire massive amounts of data and then come up with uh, novel approaches for treatment. When that was launched, the initial capital investment was nine point, I mean, uh, sorry, $215 million. As of last year, the Chinese have launched uh, through their 13th five-year strategy, their own uh, national precision medicine initiative coupled with their own big data analytics high-performance computing initiative and their initial investment, 9.2 billion over the next 15 years. So they obviously see strategically how this can um, set them uh, ahead of us. And for your purposes, asking that we broaden the security scope on what we consider biodefense um, what we're concerning is it's not only just the, the health aspects of it from how this potentially can augment an adversary's defensive capabilities, offensive capabilities, but now we're looking at is the U.S. going to become marginalized on the global economic stage? Does this translate into loss of our um, ability to stay leaders in the innovation space, um, as well as looking at um, how this impacts us from just from a national security globally and from a strategic standpoint? So. Um, Wanted to take this opportunity to kind of expand that and, and uh, open to some questions. But again, thank you for this opportunity. Fascinating, and you did expand it, and uh, much food for thought. Um, let me, uh, I'll go ahead and start off with a couple questions and then turn it off to my, turn it over to my fellow panel members. Um, first, Mr. Dunaway, the, um, I just want to ask you about the investigation that you described. Um, I'm a cop show aficionado, so I just couldn't leave this hanging. You said you, you caught the bad guy because the bad guy made a mistake. Can you tell us what that mistake was? I'm just dying of curiosity. Sure. <laughs> uh, unbelievably, well, let me, let me pulling back to, to, to how we, we, we started with this individual was uh, making direct contact through undercover operations. Mm -hmm. um, without going into the specifics uh, of those operations, what I can tell you is um, to all of our surprise uh, our very talented uh, undercover operator was able to convince the subject to take a photo of themselves with the newspaper, circling it, made it possible for us to, uh, with a highlighter, which made it possible for us to recover it as evidence, uh, and, uh, and send it to us as proof uh, of their bona fides. Um, this uh, gave us the physical location, uh, of course, and as I mentioned, gave us uh, evidence to corroborate once we arrested and, and searched their residence. So, without going into more specifics, ah. it, was, it was pretty much um, it was a real it was a it was a shot that we didn't think was going to work, uh, and it worked. But it did. Yeah. Great undercover work. Yeah. Good. Okay, Doc Parker, just want to um, ask you. So, in terms of the the biological agents that are out there, sort of being trafficked about and being offered on the dark web. And, um, Mr. Norley talked about and otherwise. Do you have a sense of how much of this is um, maybe left over from nation state stockpiles? How much of this is otherwise, you know, created otherwise? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I, you know, I, if I rewind the clock, you know, back to the, say, mid-90s and even the early 2000s, I think that, you know, may have been a concern. I think the fact that uh, um, microbes are found in nature, uh, they're all over the world, um, I, I really, um, I, I give less credence that, you know, we're still dealing with, say, stockpiles from the former Soviet Union. Um, you know, they're just, they're, they're just readily available, now can be synthesized. You know, e even um, some of the lists that we have as priority agents, now I still think there are a few that on those, those lists that we better pay attention to and make sure we have everything 
um, in our toolkit to prepare, such as anthrax. Um, but lists almost make no sense today. Um, and that makes our job even, you know, e even harder. Um, so I'm not quite as concerned about, about that. Um, but I, there, there, there are still five countries um, that the Department of State um, believes um, retain some type of illicit biological weapons activity. Um, they do include um, China, Russia, North Korea, Syria. So we still have to be concerned about that proliferation uh, risk. Um, but there, there are other risks we need to worry about too. Well, to all three of you, let me just say how, how uh, appreciative uh, I am and we are of uh, your, your enormous contribution to this effort and, uh, and uh, your insights and, and, uh, and your wisdom today. I, let me just go back to a, a pretty basic question that I would have based on my own personal experience. If the anthrax attack were to occur again, God forbid, today, um, what what difference would we see in forensics and in the overall capacity for us to investigate and find some degree of confidence in attribution, given the extraordinary difficulty we had the first time? I probably should yield to my F FBI colleague, I think, to start that, and I, I will jump in. Ed, is that fair? Sir, as I said, um, you have uh, Doug Anders from the laboratory division later today to talk a little bit more about the technical aspects. But I can say that since um, uh, the uh, anthrax mailings, uh, there have been case studies where uh, the, that, that real-time communication that I mentioned before was uh, critical. Uh, a good example was there was an instance where an individual showed up in the, in the emergency room with inhalational anthrax. And that is, from a, from a, a health standpoint, that is really rare. And so that set off red flags. Um, the, the appropriate public authority, uh, health authorities were notified. But at the same time, there was a concurrent notification to the FBI, that WD coordinator program. So there was, there was that really important real-time communication between public health and, and law enforcement to determine rapidly, is, was this an indication of an intentional release of some kind, or was this a freak issue? And it turned out in that instance, it really was a freak issue. It turned out to be an, a performing artist who was scraping animal hides from Africa uh, to make drum sets. And the, it, as Dr. Parker mentioned, uh, anthracis is found in nature, and the spores were just part of the hive. But it does show how important uh, that, that timely notification and the sharing information between law enforcement and public health was key in that incident. And Ed brings up a very good example of the of, of the uh, the drummer, uh, um, the hides, and so forth. But you may recall in the initial um, some of the initial reports in 2001 with anthrax, some of the initial reports were even um, believed that it might have been natural. And I think you know many of us in the national security community, you know, <laughs> thought immediately this can't be natural. But but it's hard. You, you have you have to. Um, do the proper investigation and have the communication channels to try to differentiate between natural and, um, and, and intentional. But with something like inhalational anthrax, you probably ought to be assuming intentional until otherwise you know, proven. Um, 
I, I also want to make a comment about the, just the science of micro, microbial forensics and how hard it's going to even get as we expand the definition of um, biodefense. It's a hard science. And, and uh, the te technical difficulties um, in that science will rely on traditional investigative methods um, coupled with the science, but we got to keep trying on the hard science. Uh, we, we need a solid sound foundation plus um, traditional investigative methods to be able to make these, these decisions. I, I think you know some recent discussions about for maybe abandoning a laboratory that was built and dedicated um, for um, microbial forensics to support attribution. Um, I, I think I, I think those decisions need to really be looked at very, very closely. We need, there was a good reason why decisions were made back then to establish dedicated capabilities and develop the scientific cadre and experience that was focused on microbial forensics and that mindset. It's not a part-time job. It's not something you pull, you pull the scientists out of a uh, of another lab that may be working on vaccine development or diagnostic development to to uh, start working on a uh, an investigative case it needs that dedication and 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 I hope some of those um, those decisions are revisited um, and perhaps uh, strengthen the need that we have these need to have these dedicated core capabilities that can reach out to the broader scientific community across the nation and in, and involve those in universities industry and so forth too so Dr. Parker, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just I just want to add to that um, that in the case of the investigation I mentioned, that reach back capability was integral. It it was vital, uh, and and it's it, that capability that you described is one that as a, a WMD investigator in the field we relied upon on a, on, a, on a nearly daily basis. We were very busy in the New Jersey division, New York, New Jersey. I, I can I can attest to the quick response to notification for I was I was serving during the time of that that incident, um, and the the ability to reach back to those experts in a rapid manner, um, I can't think of a worse uh, result for the agents in the field than removing that capability. Well, I, I just uh, would want to say with an exclamation point how much I am in full agreement. I, I think it would be so penny wise and pound foolish and such a, a, a short-sighted decision. I'm very hopeful like you that we can address it. Let me just ask one final question. I know we have a, a lot of uh, wonderful experts here today, but so much of the challenge is scientific and technological, but so much of it is organizational as well. And I, I would be uh, very interested if you could give us your guidance on organizationally, from at least the federal perspective, how would you how would you address this challenge more effectively? I, I, I sense today that so many entities have some responsibility that the essence of it becomes no one has responsibility. And so there's so much of the effort that, that just doesn't get the kind of priority that it deserves in part because it's, it doesn't fit in the, in the top five for any one particular agency. And to your point uh, earlier, Mr. Dunaway, I, I'm especially concerned about the degree of gap that you say exists between non-national security and national security and how we look at that organizationally. So if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the organizational challenges we face, I, I would be grateful. Well, um, you know, I'll start. I, you know, I think fundamentally, um, fundamentally it starts, it does start with leadership at the highest levels. And we've talked about this. Um, it's in our report 
uh, the need to have uh, leadership at the highest levels that can give this issue priority. Um, we, it's been talked about uh, since our report came out, um, or the Blue Ribbon Panel came out and, um, um, two years ago now. Uh, it's been noted in, um, by other reports, and that issue of, of strong centralized leadership to give this issue priority is, is essential. Now, I understand that there, um, the world today is extremely complex. Our foreign policy has got, has extreme challenges. And so it's difficult for other issues to kind of raise to the top. But unfortunately, we are still here today where we are dealing with the bio, biodefense issue broadly defined, whether it's a, a crime, terror act, biological warfare, or an emerging infectious disease. It's, we're still in a reactive posture. I hope we can get beyond just a reactive posture. Now that has importance also for the issue we're talking about today in at attribution. It's not just a public health issue. It should be afforded the same level of priority that we, we provide to nuclear weapons forensics. The consequences could be worse with a bio-warfare attack and some of the profound decisions that may need to make could be catastrophic catastrophic if we make the wrong decision. I, 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 I want to address the issue of organization first, but then I, I definitely want to, uh, to hit on the other point on the, on the classified gaps. But um, I'm going to say something that I'm not sure that Special Agent, uh, Supervisor Special Agent, you will be able to address. And, and now that I'm no longer in the federal employee, I'm, I'm going to say, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, uh, take this opportunity. Uh, I believe that uh, just specifically in the FBI, uh, sufficient resources are not provided to the WNB directorate uh, in general. In specific, uh, the biological side of the WMD directorate, I believe, would utilize every penny of resources that's provided to them. I believe there is no end to efficient, good ideas that would be enacted if additional resources were placed. Um, there has been a number of successes, and I'm very proud of the successes in, in my time in the FBI working with, with Ed. Um, but I often lamented, as did my partners, in the lack of resources that were provided. <clears throat> that being said, this, this is obviously a larger issue than just the FBI, uh, and there are some leadership issues that arise out of the um, multidisciplinary uh, you know, boundaries that exist. Um, however, in the FBI, it's one of the things that I felt was the great strength of the WMD directorate was that, um, and it was one of the reasons I enjoyed so much my time as a WMD investigator. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cyber nerd at heart, but I have a biochemistry degree and I love working in biochemistry. Um, and in this field, I was able to combine them both along with all the other disciplines and, and have a variety of, of uh, activities. But what I was able to do with Ed as well is see a bigger picture by looking at the multidisciplinary nature of it. It was it was it was part of the job in a way that isn't necessarily something that uh, those agents that work solely cyber matters or solely international terrorism or solely domestic terrorism have the opportunity to see just based upon the nature of the workload. Um, and I believe expanding that uh, with those resources provided uh, would would allow for for greater inaction of of, of I believe activity that would help. Um, now, uh, specifically to the 
classified nature of, of, this, of these gaps and the technical solutions, I'm not certain that the government is the, by itself is the place to, to find those solutions. I, I understand um, and was a part of deliberations for deciding whether a technical solution would be utilized. I believe an appropriate level of thought is given to those uh, deliberations. Um, there are national security matters that, that, that warrant retention of certain techniques and as was possible through our investigation, we were able to, to, to resolve the, the situation without using them. And I think that is actually a best case scenario. However, um, I believe the government rightfully so is always going to lean towards that uh, perspective. And I believe a partnership, a, a private-public partnership, uh, is, is going to be where these gaps are filled. I think the government giving support, either financially or through policy, to allow business to invest the capital necessary and the time necessary to develop these, these methods, uh, as is beginning to some extent in this, the purely cyber world, um, although it's still lacking as, as, as we all recently have seen in some of the major breaches that have occurred. Um, I think that's going to be the direction that's going to be uh, fruitful in that area. Uh, thanks uh, to the three of you. Really excellent testimony. So um, I presume everybody in the room knows uh, what we're talking about when we talk about the um, um, NBAC or NBFAC, the Biological Attribution Center, centers out in uh, Fort Detrick. Uh, they were built. Uh, 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 out of a need, a perceived need, urgent need for exactly this kind of analysis uh, center, um, the federal government, the taxpayers, spent almost $150 million to build it. It's state-of-the-art. It's getting a lot of use. And now the Trump administration's budget has recommended that it essentially it be closed up. Now, this could be, of course, you know, shot across the bow, the initial budget proposal, but you got to take it Seriously, it reminded me, if I may take a, very <laughs> a variation of my co-chair, Tom Ridge used to say when he would, in the halcyon days when he was the secretary, of, first secretary of DHS, and I was the chair of the committee in the Senate, he'd come up and say, I, we'd say, how are you doing, Mr. Secretary? He said, well, I feel like I'm trying to fly a plane while building it. And um, he was right. In this case, with defunding these centers in Fort Detrick, it's, it's as if uh, we are trying to take apart a plane that we are asking to be flown to a place of real uh, national co uh, security concern. So I, I hope we can turn it around. Just to, to make the point, uh, Mr. Yu, uh, FBI is a major consumer of the work done um, at these centers. But what would you do if, they were, uh, if, if this facility was closed up? Well, as Mr. Dunaway said, uh, it is an important asset as far as helping us on our investigative work. Um, I'll just build off of my prior comments in yeah. that um, we are dealing with bio, and this is a much different realm compared to the chemical and the radiological nuclear realm where you're dealing with finite materials, a very specific type of expertise that can be regulated. But it's completely different in the in the biological sciences realm. And Dr. Parker and I served on the on the policy side of the house when it comes to biosecurity. And the the and this kind of goes back to the prior government question, that even the MBAC and MBFAC and existing government policies right now are still, if you look at it at the heart, is a very specific list of agents of concern. Mm -hmm. And in my my opening statements, biotech is 
making is blowing that wide open. And my nightmare scenario is that bio is, there's an almost complete convergence with the cyber realm. And the nightmare is what happens if life sciences has the same type of security issues that we have with cybersecurity today? Then if that's being the case, we're gonna need more than ever the type of resources to be able to not only look at the agents, but looking at the signature for say, say for example, software coders who design um, agents or even now today, as we speak, you can design microbes to produce opioid products. So this, this is, goes beyond even the state and non-state actually and looking at criminal enterprise where there's absolutely incentive to leverage these type of biotech expertise. So then now you're act, you know, looking at supporting potential narcotics, illicit right. narcotics, and we're already in the throes of an opioid fentanyl epidemic in this country. So uh, along those same lines, that aspect of being able to call back for the, anal uh, the analysis for the, to support our ongoing investigations, it's more than just the pathogens and toxins. We're looking at a whole other aspect now too. Um, and it goes back to the public-private partnerships is that enlisting future software um, coders um, to be able to adjust the spaces, not just the lab straight up laboratorians, but much like the life sciences is becoming multidisciplinary in nature, so to our uh, ability to do the analysis and uh, the attribution capability, that has to expand as well. So if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're, you're saying that the uh, facilities out of Fort Detrick are critically important, but in fact, uh, we need even more than that because of this, the rapid changes occurring in biotech and the convergence of, of biotech and cyber. Yes, sir. So to, to build off of uh, uh, um, Secretary Rich's comment is that not only are we you know, trying to fly the plane while we're building, uh, as, as we're flying it, we're trying to build it, but now we're trying to reach low Earth orbit. orbit. Yeah. <laughs> so and while, while we're pulling it apart, yeah. Um, Mr. Dunaway, m maybe you can help us just uh, briefly try to uh, – bring the convergence of biotech and cyber uh, to a uh, an example that uh, somebody like me can understand. <laughs> What's, what, what, what do we mean when we uh, say that's happening? Well, <coughs> the difficulty with that is, as, as, as Ed has said here, um, to the experts that I told him before, we don't really know what it's going to look like because yeah. it's so, so many potential, um, th the potential is so great uh, that, that we, we really can't accurately predict. All I could do is give some examples of some recent uh, um, events that I think uh, potentially could could Yeah, that, uh, would, that would be helpful. Something that we know is happening now. So, so um, there was recently published some research where uh, a, a few researchers were able to conduct a hack of a synthesizer, of, of, a, of a network system for a uh, – I'm going to generalize here, but for, for a company that produced genetic sequences, as, as I was referring to, that's a capability that's existed now for well over a decade, and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, it's a commodity, that, that service at this point. Uh, these researchers were able to show that by sending a sequence of a certain type, they were able to uh, affect a, a, uh, and compromise uh, the code of the machines and take control of those machines. So instead of the typical... Um, hacking attempts that are that we see now using zero-day exploits of software code purely on the computer systems, they were able to actually use the genetic code to re bridge that gap. Now that was a proof of concept. It wasn't out in the wild, but I think it demonstrates one of the many, many different potential uh, issues that are going to uh, con conduct be conducted with cyber and bio. I look at it, rather than trying to think of specific examples, 
I don't even look at the bio side as much. I just look at what's happening in the cyber realms. When I see a ha when I see the Equifax hack, I think of a bio Equifax hack. Sure. When I see another that I every time I see a cyber event, I think of analogous bio, and I think that is that mindset is one that we need to all start taking. Uh, let Let me go back to the uh, bad guy we talked about before who made a stupid mistake. Uh, to the extent you're able, uh, and I think it might make the threat real. If you're if you're able, what was his motivation? Was he a domestic terrorist, a foreign terrorist, or just a lunatic? Um, so uh, I can I can uh, go into detail. This this information actually is public record. Uh, okay, good. The subject is Jesse Korf. Is his name. Um, I got to know him fairly well uh, uh, after his arrest. I had many many interviews with with him over about a year after after his apprehension and arrest. Uh, Mr. Korf was 18 years old when when we arrested him. He, um, I, I think he actually represents an aspect of this that I think is going to, to increase. That is, individuals that were born of the internet age, born, uh, uh, they didn't learn it, they were born in this, this realm. Um, the cyber aspects is not something they had to learn, it's just something they're comfortable with. He certainly was. Um, uh, I, the, the use of the dark net and these types of, of, of technologies that was secondhand to him and, and something he just did as a matter of course. And I believe that that is, I believe that's accurate and reflective of that generation. And I don't think that's pejorative. I think that is just a fact. Uh, in his case, he was incredibly inquisitive. I think uh, it's, it's, it's one of the saddest stories in my career, actually. Um, he was uh, born to foster homes and passed around when he was very young. Um, became addicted to several different types of drugs during his very young age. I'd be talking seven or eight. It was really, really sad. Um, he, he, he never learned a moral compass. He, he, uh, he never had public interaction. He lived online. And I don't believe um, necessarily connected as fully as, as one would, uh, a well-adjusted individual would connect actions online with their actions in person. I, I believe that was something that was a factor in his in his sentencing, and I was yeah. I was uh, in support of that. Uh, however, this person was brilliant. He developed his own methods. As our lab, as our reachback showed, the methods he used to extract Abin and Ricin were effective and were novel. Um, he used rudiment. He did not purchase a DIY lab. Like he did not have a community lab to do this. He did this in a very um, low tech method. Um, it was the, the, the selling of it via those dark marketplaces, which really was the more sophisticated aspects. He understood encryption, using uh, encryption in all his communications. And, and as I said previously, I think that's, that's going to be more and more common. It's going to be secondhand. For, for a lot of us, we learned it as we developed, as I did. I learned that young, but I didn't, wasn't born into it. Many of us, it was something we learned later in life. For these people, it's going to be secondhand. Um, so, no, I wouldn't phrase him as, 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 as a crazy person necessarily. He had mentally issues, certainly and no domestic or international terrorism goals, he purely was able to make money really yeah. easy doing something <coughs> that, uh, that, that he enjoyed. He intellectually enjoyed the, the challenge of creating these materials and just didn't yeah. connect. That makes it real. Uh, Dr. Parker, uh, last question. Uh, in, uh, over the life of this uh, uh, panel, uh, you've been an ex-official member. You've really uh, helped us enormously. And I'll just say for myself, I've learned a lot you're an expert in, in infectious animal diseases and the intersection of the of animal diseases with human diseases is really uh, quite remarkable and, uh, and uh, um, I know so much more now. 
than I did before. So we're focused on uh, biological attribution. We're really focused on the, um, the, the bioterrorist attack, for instance. But in the work of our panel, we've operated on a um, premise, which is that what it takes to deal with bioterrorism is pretty similar to what it takes to deal with an infectious disease epidemic or a pandemic. So I wanted to ask you, what's the connection here? Uh, in other words, to what extent does biological, our, our biological attribution capability actually enable us uh, to do things we otherwise wouldn't be able to do when it comes to um, uh, essentially calling, recognizing uh, the beginning of an infectious disease pandemic? Um, well, first, thank you for your, your, your comments and, um, and I've enjoyed uh, working with the panel on these hard issues. Um, at attribution is one of the major components of our overall biodefense strategy, strategy broadly defined, whether it's, a, whether, again, whether it's a, a natural outbreak, attack, or, or accident. It's one of the stools and it's one of the national security stools. I happen to believe that emerging infectious diseases are a national security issue. And they have been recognized as, as, as that in some, some circles. Um, attribution, our laboratory surveillance networks, our public health laboratories, our military laboratories, our laboratories like INBAC and others that, are, that, that may focus on the attribution component of this, all, they need to be all connected. And they, all need, they also need to be connected in a One Health fashion. And One Health is meaning that interface between animals humans and the ecosystem they they uh, find themselves in and as I mentioned we are living in a perfect storm uh, where the emergence of the next pat pandemic will come and it's also at that nexus where there's a um, happens to be a um, terrorist activity um, and so they're all related we have to integrate these components and it's going to take leadership to do that thank you thank you Tim Dr. Parker, if I could just follow up just um, on the, the dollars and cents issue, um, which, uh, you know, I think is a, an important issue for us here today, especially given the, the budget that we've seen. Um, so you, you made the point that it's, a, it's not a part-time job doing this attribution work. And I guess, um, so my question is I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a staffer at OMB or I'm a staffer in appropriations, and I, I think, okay, do you need a 24-7 around the clock Capability. Do we need? Do we really need to pay for that? Given that you know, I read the newspapers. I hear about the occasional ricin attack. I hear you know anthrax was however many years ago. Do we really need that? We we absolutely really need that. You know, I think there's, um, um, I, but I do. I think we we have to take a hard look at our budget. Our budget. Um, we we are experiencing deficits that we shouldn't be uh, experiencing. Um, but we have to look beyond just the biodefense budget to find where some of these savings are. And we also have to look within the biodefense budget to make sure that we are prioritizing the available resources that we have to the maximum benefit. And, um, and, and so if the danger is, yes, some, somebody operating a spreadsheet in the halls of O&B is going to make a decision that's not, not, not in line with the priorities that, that we need. Again, leadership is going to be an issue. Uh, to help work these things. We need that national strategy that we, um, I think, is underway now in the interagency. 
uh, and I hope attribution is uh, plus a number of other things that we've we've recognized as, as priorities. Um, but we we um, we we do we owe it to the American taxpayer, all of us, that the dollars and resources that we have available in whatever program are using for the maximum benefit possible. I guess I just want to make make clear to anybody who's skeptical of that that there. It, this isn't something where you're just reacting to well, the, yeah, the, the attack of the day, but there's, it's a constant it's a educational constant, and, process. And, yes, and I also think there's a misconception that we have a laboratory somewhere that's just responding to a bioterror attack that hasn't occurred since 2001. And we're keeping a lab open with the lights running and nothing's happening. That couldn't be further from the truth. Now, I don't have, I don't have more recent information of that, but when I was directly related, when I was in government, um, that lab was busy. There are cases happening all the time uh, that the FBI is or the intelligence community is taking samples to that laboratory and, and samples then get um, triaged and sent to other, other scientists across the United States. That laboratory is busy. Um, there are things that happen all the time to rule things out or to rule things in and to be that, that subject matter reach back to support either intelligence or FBI or public health. So it could be – it's just a misconception that the lab is just uh, waiting for the next attack that hasn't come. Great, thanks very much. I'll turn over to the CPC members for any questions. It's a point that uh, not only does this now transcend uh, the conventional frameworks of security, the whole economic dimension of this has to come into perspective. And at the same time, as contemporary biology begins to map essentially every biological process, the whole issue transcends microorganisms to open up an entire new vista of being able, if you understand the wiring diagrams of any given biological function, you, that, that obviously has great import in a beneficent sense in terms of new diagnostics and therapeutics, but the knowledge of that wiring diagram also creates an entire new vulnerability to essentially attack any cell type or function within the body. Just a small point. I wonder if you would share with us information, not now, but over time, on the Chinese program you described. Uh, I have more of a simple observation. I'd been thinking of a question before that has to do with the fact that we seem to operate always in the reactive mode and not able to look forward. Um, and I thought that perhaps the example of naturally occurring outbreaks that we've had recently could provide an example as opposed to waiting for an incident to happen. Um, but from my previous federal experience, I felt that exposing vulnerabilities in a public setting was not a good idea. Uh, and I find now that you've already identified so many really critical vulnerab vulnerabilities and needs for the capabilities, for example, at the NBAC, um, that I think you've already made the compelling case and answered my question before I asked it. Uh, thank you again for your uh, uh, insights. Um, trying to respond to the needs of law, law enforcement, and policy, doctrine, etc. And I think uh, your emphasis on the cyber learn and lessons. My question is, uh, what what about the uh, uh, general public and their fear? or confusion, uh, as we have seen tragically now in Las Vegas uh, attack. 
which is something else, but at the same time, what if? So my question is, um, what do you think in terms of leadership um, is needed to deal with the public and the civic society? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, that'll answering that will allow me to address a couple of the points that were just was just made. Uh, I I truly do feel that uh, a government only solution for any any of these issues, but specifically the public trust, is is not a viable solution. There there is um, I think there is too large of, uh, and certainly a significant portion of of the public that that are not going to be comforted by government information. I just think that's the truth that we have to accept. Uh, I, I certainly experienced that as, as one of the WMD uh, investigators, WMD coordinators, beyond doing investigations, outreaching liaison, quite frankly, that's, that was the, the, the largest percentage of the time spent when, when uh, for most uh, WMD coordinators, uh, if not in an investigation, is building those bridges. Uh, and I spent many years talking with um, both public through uh, academic institutions as well as through uh, with with companies in our in our AOR and our area of responsibility, and um, that's where my opinion on on the, the government only approach not being viable um, comes from. I believe a strong partnership, uh, in some form, being transparent, which I think is part of the issue for the government. There are actual national security matters and needs that keep the government from being able to be trans transparent. It's just a fact of, 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 of the mission for, for what these agencies are, are, are doing. Um, I believe if we can develop a transparent private entity, maybe a, a, you know there's some, some public safety issue, uh, organizations that, that perhaps can be mimicked, APSA and other safety organizations, I think we need to go a lot farther than what those organizations currently um, do. But I think if you were to find uh, private entities at Inspiron Biosciences, this is certainly something that we're developing and, and working very hard. This is one of the reasons we're working with Dr. Randy Merch on the Cyber Biosecurity Initiative, is to try to build a business uh, platform uh, that, 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 that provides a service, things like offensive security, things like uh, genetic screening, services that a lot of these companies, through my personal experience as a WND coordinator, uh, would like to do if they were offered, but either through cost or lack of uh, legal requirements are not currently doing. I think if those services were provided, I think that uh, they would. There, there's a business opportunity there that if that is coinciding with a transparent public demonstration of of what these activities are, I think I think that just being truthful to the public, actually providing information that they can validate. This is where you bring in, I think, academic institutions that are that are more used to. Uh, publishing information. I think it needs to be a partnership for all of these organizations because the government by themselves are just too hamstrung, I believe, to, to effectively. Uh, thank you for the question. I really appreciate that. Um, I think when I mentioned the role of the WD coordinators in, in conducting outreach, I, um, I, played a, I rendered short shrift because it's really nuanced. Um, we've been doing this for a number of years where we facilitated engagement, as I mentioned, uh, to high-end uh, life sciences community members such as universities, pharmaceutical companies, biotech firms, all the way down to the garage biohackers, the do-it-yourself bio community members. And the power of that um, is that proactive, not reactive, but proactive engagement is raising the, the, this, the awareness within those, that citizenry 
to look out for not just only being you know more safe in their in their laboratories, but now understanding that they have a role to play in protecting the life sciences, and they're willing to report now as as, as like a tripwire reporting to the FBI WD coordinators because, as I said, there's a specific entity that's trusted now that they can report that to, which then also highlights a, another challenge of vulnerability that. The U.S. is the FBI is the only place in the in, uh, in law enforcement internationally that has a specific WMD coordinator capacity. So f what that means is that um, through our international engagements, through cooperative threat reduction, we have um, enabled a lot of um, trained scientists internationally to be more aware on safety and security issues. But is there a corresponding law enforcement capacity where we're building those bridges between the scientific community with foreign public health or foreign um, agricultural services. What's the equivalent? So, and as you all well aware, you know, bio knows no bomb, it doesn't respect boundaries It's it, if yeah, there is a pandemic. So that is the other aspect that maybe goes beyond the scope of the panel, but may, I think, well, warrants, merits a bullet that we have uh, this very effective W coordinator position with the FBI, but what does that look like with our foreign law enforcement partners, that same core capacity? I, if I could just maybe add, I mean, the global health security agenda actually includes an action package um, um, that um, gets at the interface of law enforcement and public health and the need to build those capacities internationally so we can we can detect an outbreak, fight the microbe overseas before we have to fight it here. And that that is, I think, an area worth uh, further exploration. And in this, you know, the budget cut, um, those things right now are very easy to hit the budget Dust floor. Thanks, Ken. Um, just a few questions since we have some time. Um, one of the things that we talk about on the panel is uh, that uh, the biological threat has been with us for quite some time. Um, even when we look at our own history in the United States, it's not like, you know, last year we had an offensive program and then we shut it down. We had it decades ago and we shut it down. but. You know, the point is it was there de decades ago, and now we're still addressing it. Um, we believe it's really important to get ahead of various threats. And, uh, you know, so here we have the cyber threat, and that's great, but we're already asking what's the next thing? What's beyond the cyber threat? Um, because there's going to be something beyond the cyber threat. Um, and, and perhaps more specifically, we're talking about, uh, we were talking about the dark net, we're talking about dark web. Um, uh, Nick, can you talk a little bit? Uh, can you guess what's beyond? What's the next thing beyond that? Because <coughs> it already seems a little. If you look at the uh, if you look at the uh, communications traffic about Tor, even people are already like, oh, let's move oh, on. Sure. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could list a number of other I two P. There's all. There's always going to be something new. I I think an important lesson before I even give you any guesses, an important lesson from that, and perhaps the most important lesson um, as it relates to legislation is that, in my opinion, and I think history has shown us, that legislating against technology is a disaster. Uh, attempting to legislate to a specific technology mm -hmm. at the moment is, 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 is bound to fail because by the time you even start to enact that legislation, the technology has changed in some fundamental way. Um, so I, I think that was maybe the biggest take-home lesson out of, out of that uh, points you were making there. But, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I constantly try to keep my ear to the, to the research. I'm, I'm, I think synthetic biology, I mean, obviously the, 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 the CRISPR revolution, um, which is already now another technique that is 
purported to be more efficient than CRISPR-Cas9 mm -hmm. is being published. Uh, and what has it been, a year and a half since that really got a lot of traction. Um, I think it was, two it was 2013 when we were first uh, talking to some folks about CRISPR uh, and how it was about to just blow out everything. Um, what's going to happen next year? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you is um, I expect genetic engineering to become more targeted, more capable, um, and it's, I think, rather than think about the technology, just consider that it's only going to get more effective and more expansive. Um, and, and I think in that realm, an area that is worth considering is, um, as is often asked to me, should we, should we ban certain types of research? Should we allow certain types of research? And in, in my opinion, I believe these advances, and, and I, I generally hate to say this word, but I believe that they're inevitable. And I believe that outright bans on, on, on this types of research are only going to serve to take the United States out of leadership uh, in this space, uh, which will have huge national security concerns just purely from the economic standpoint. Uh, and if you're not in the uh, if you're not in the field, you're not having an effect on the on the game. Uh, so I, I would hope that uh, that there would be some sort of measured middle ground on on those discussions. Certainly. Just, just from the standpoint of, of, of human experiments, we've seen a number of countries, including non, uh, other than China, that are doing uh, you know embryonic research. I think that, I think that uh, that horse is out of the out of the cart, so to, out, mm -hmm. of the, out of the house, so to speak. Uh, so, so I, that's one big point. Another, I think that is potentially there. Uh, it's yet to be seen. Is the biobricks movement, the idea of of, of engineering and biology, um, if if that is successful, if that continues to to, to develop. Um, I really do think you can think of engineering principles and think of the possibilities. Um, this is why I say when I think of cyber events, I think of bio events. It's partly because of some of the success. I think of you know the logic gates, you know basic parts of transistors being created with biological material. Um, you know a lot of these things are are, are are in the early stages and not necessarily any more proof of concept. But I tend to, to be a futurist and think that these things are going to happen. It's a matter of time, uh, and it might be an ebb and flow on how quickly. Um, but accepting that these things are inevitable and working from that perspective rather than trying to stop them, I think is the most important lesson I would, I would say we should take from this. Okay, thanks. Um, Ed, uh, sorry, Special Agent Yu, sorry. <laughs> um, two questions for you. One is you were talking about uh, the need to perhaps replicate the WMD coordinator type position internationally. Um, has the FBI had any conversations about that with Interpol and Europol and some of the others? Yes. So we, as I mentioned before, we have um, the WMD coordinator position hosted internationally as well too. And um, the FBI's mission has always been about developing force multipliers, partnerships. And so absolutely we have been engaged with Interpol, with Europol, with um, our, our, our Five Eyes partners as well in their mm -hmm. law enforcement. Um, but again, it, it's, it's a matter of, uh, and it was mentioned, of it's, it's scope um, in that the biotech realm is moving and expanding so rapidly that it's, it's difficult to just keep up with the things that are already list-based. Mm -hmm. um, but now you add on some of the, the, the broader technologies that are coming on board, it, it, it makes it that much more challenging. Okay. And you, we've talked a bit about the bioeconomy and the importance. Um, given the importance of the bioeconomy, um, do you believe that at the White House, in addition to the National Security Council, we should be engaging the National Economic Council as well on these issues? So, um, uh, absolutely. I mean, this is an, an all-hands-on-deck um, type of issue. Um, as, as broad as the, 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 um, 
biodefense enterprise is, as I mentioned, and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record now, it is still very much pathogen or toxin focused. Mm -hmm. But um, as, as Dr. Post just mentioned, the fact that we're, where life science is taking us, where it becomes more data centric, and it, we're just focusing on health, this has implications on additive manufacturing, on alternative and renewable energy, mm -hmm. um, on agriculture, that all bets are off now. It's just, a, it's, for lack of a better term, in the, in the life sciences, and especially in the data space, we are in the middle of a space race. We are absolutely in the middle of a space race. The only difference is that the Sputnik moment hasn't happened yet, mm -hmm. but it will. And we, we are not set up to determine where is that going to happen, how is that going to happen. And that's also one of the thrusts of why we're doing outreach is that if you have an informed citizenry, who best than the experts themselves to determine where the next big thing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So from a national security standpoint from, our, uh, from here is for us being somewhat myopic, um, and not looking at the broader aspects of where life science is taking us. Absolutely, we need the uh, um, the economics aspects of it, the foreign diplomacy aspects, the trade aspects of it, uh, among uh, among a wealth of other aspects. Mm -hmm. But it does go beyond to, to what I would characterize as the tr traditional approach to to biosecurity and biotechnology. Thank you. Okay, I think that winds up our session. Well, thank you so much. This has been. Um, Tremendously illuminating, sobering, um, but uh, we very much appreciate it. Appreciate all the time, and we will um, take a, let me see a lunch break until about ten after quarter after twelve, at which time um, Dr. Kime. Paul Kime will be here to speak um, about Amerithrax sixteen years later. All right. Hey Ken, if you'll allow me to sure. offer a benediction in my role. It just strikes me as I'm listening to this, two things. One is, as we watch this extraordinary uh, uh, expansion, acceleration of biotechnology capability, which is really one of the defining parts of our age and really doing wonderful things for us. It, it also reminds us really from, from the beginning of human history that we've, uh, generally speaking, advances have also uh, uh, been taken and used for um, adverse purposes like war. So be, going right way back to fire, you know, made a big difference in human existence. And you can come up to the telegraph and the steamship and the railroad. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with a, uh, a recurring human problem, but I inevitably governments represent and law have to try to intervene to protect people's security. The, the other thing to say, uh, forgive me for uh, this is coming from our experience, um, one of the great, the this is a microcosm, not so much of a, this is an example, what we've talked about today, of a general problem our government has today, which is both because of the, um, the pervasive uh, gridlock, partisan, ideological rigidity, et cetera, and to a certain extent because of the, the refusal, related refusal to deal with the budget um, in a, in a rational way. Um, it's very hard for the federal government of the U.S. to get ahead of problems, as somebody said. Uh, we tend to only react when there is a crisis or, God forbid, a catastrophe. And so this is, a, I mean, part of what we're working on here is to try to, in this particular area, which we think really matters to human safety, human lives in America, that to try to be advocates to both the public and private sectors to get ahead of this 
uh, potential threat, real threat, uh, before we have a crisis or a catastrophe. I, I hope that doesn't uh, badly affect your appetite during lunch, but those are, <laughs> thank you.
Okay, everybody. I think we're going to go ahead and resume. Okay, folks, we're going to go ahead and have our uh, lunchtime speaker, and folks, feel free to step in and out to get drinks, coffee, whatever. Um, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Paul Keim here with us today. Dr. Keim is the Cowden Endowed Chair of Microbiology at Northern Arizona University. He's the Director of Pathogen Genomics at the Trans, uh, Transnational Genomics Research Institute, or Translational Genomics Research Institute and works also with the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's one of the world's leading researchers in anthrax, and his university uh, houses one of the largest anthrax strain collections in the world. Um, his laboratory was critical in the effort to inform the U.S. government's response to the 2001 anthrax attacks, identifying the strain of anthrax that was used and analyzed as, uh, for forensic purposes. And he and I actually just uh, had a sidebar and um, reminisce a little bit about the days of the anthrax investigation. I had I was sort of on the periphery of that, and it was a fascinating matter, and most fascinating was dealing with experts uh, like Dr. Khan. So uh, we're gonna, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Khan. I'm going to apologize myself because uh, both Senator Lehman and I are shuttling it out for um, a couple obligations. I'll be right back. Um, so please, I, I apologize for disruption in advance, but we'd love to hear your thoughts about the anthrax investigation. What are yours? Well, thanks so much for inviting me. As uh, you've already pointed out, I'm, I'm Paul Keim. I'm a college professor, but I also work with a nonprofit research institute called TGen, or the Translational Genomics Research Institute, which is uh, primarily a, a precision medicine and cancer genomics institute headed up by Dr. Jeff Trent, who used to be in charge of the intramural program for the genome, that, that's the human genome, at the National Institutes of Health. In addition to all that, uh, some people thought I sent the letters. <laughs> uh, there were a few FBI agents who visited me in, uh, in October of 2001 and wanted to know where I was. And, uh, you know, I had very good alibis. Luckily, my wife was willing to testify <laughs> that I was with her. <laughs> I, I don't think that was a serious uh, investigation, but they were covering all of their bases because, as you mentioned, my laboratory does house one the largest uh, strain collection of bacillus anthracis and other uh, bacterial pathogens, select agent pathogens in the world. And the reason we do that is because we are very much engaged in microbial forensics. We want to be able to understand the diversity of these organisms and then use that uh, to, uh, to do attribution as certain cases pop up and go, go along. Uh, I'm the past acting chair of the National Science Advisory Board for Biodefense, and so many of the issues you heard about dual use and synthetic biology I dealt with. I was one of the founding members of that board. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that today, though. I think today uh, my mission is to talk about microbial forensics. Uh, I'm going to talk about what we did in 2001 in the Amerithrax investigation. I'm going to contrast that with an investigation that we carried out uh, to look at the cholera outbreak in Haiti in 2011. 
So that's a 10 year gap that I'll be able to contrast, you know, what we could do then and what we can do now. And then I'll also tell you what in the years since 2011, uh, what we're able to do uh, in this area. So what's the status quo, so to speak. Now microbial forensics is clearly more than just genetics and genomics. But genomics is my bailiwick, so I'm going to tell you about what I know about, and I'll try, I'll try to answer questions if you want to talk about elemental analysis or other type of structural analysis and things like that uh, for microbial forensics. But really my expertise is in genomics, and so I'm going to tell you about what's been going on there over the last 16 years. And maybe in contrast to the first panel, I, I have a very positive message to send to you. In fact, genomics has moved forward at the speed of light in the last 16 years, and our capabilities are so much greater now than they were 16 years ago, and that we actually have an incredible tool for microbial forensics. Now, uh, again, DNA isn't the only thing involved in microbial forensics, but, you know, modeled after the human identification, the CODIS databases, and the really the way that DNA analysis has changed the way the courts look at uh, convicting people. Uh, look at the Innocence Project, project for example. You know, DNA is an incredibly powerful tool, and it's really what we modeled our whole program after. Now, it uh, turns out that human identification is easy compared to microbial forensics. Uh, in microbial forensics, we have uh, a multitude of organisms, biothreat agents that could be, in, could be involved in a biocrime. Uh, we have different biologies. These organisms act differently. They have different rules. Uh, many of them replicate by what we call clonal uh, processes, which means that uh, you can have a anthrax in California, you can have one in Connecticut, and they would be identical, and they would be very natural. So identity and matching is also problematic sometimes in microbial forensics, and so we need to understand the biology and the evolution, the ecology of these organisms. At heart, as a college professor, I'm really an evolutionary biologist. Uh, I use DNA and DNA sequencing as a way to understand how organisms change. And of course, that's central to, to understanding the science when we get into microbial forensics. So in October of 2001, uh, before you knew what anthrax was, Senator Daschle, uh, I got a phone call from an FBI scientist, maybe the only microbiologist in the FBI who had worked on bacillus uh, of course, the organism, uh, the group of organisms that anthrax belongs to. Uh, Doug Beecher gave me a call and said there was a very unusual case of anthrax in Florida. And, you know, we don't know where it came from. It could be a natural case. It could be this or that. Of course, coming on the tail end, uh, just in the, the weeks following 9-11, we were all thinking this is nefarious, but uh, there was really no evidence for that. Uh, we didn't know how this individual had gotten the anthrax. You know, he'd been hiking in the woods, he drank water out of a spring. There are all sorts of different competing hypotheses for where he got it. But he was very sick, and he had been diagnosed with pulmonary anthrax, most likely caused by inhalation of spores. So uh, soon after that phone call, uh, the FBI, uh, sorry, the CDC, which is a part of HHS, used a private corporate jet, uh, and sent a vial of anthrax to Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, and so that private jet was chartered and sent to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is really in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, literally, we have an airport that can barely handle jets uh, right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. But the, the FBI and the CDC knew who we were and knew that we were in, engaged in anthrax research because there was a, a microbial forensic community that had been started 
uh, maybe uh, eight years before by a very forward-looking program manager in the, in the intelligence community named Janet Dorgan. Janet had gone to Los Alamos National Laboratory, had put up the money to pay for taking DNA technology and moving it into this forensic realm. So a very early pioneer in this entire area. The work that we did, uh, again, it had been communicated to the FBI. We had peer publications, and we spoke commonly. Uh, there was nothing covert about this, and so the FBI knew who we were, and so hence the, the small jet that flew to Flagstaff, Arizona, in that, uh, in, in that uh, it was actually on a Thursday evening, and uh, I met the plane. I took the vial back to the laboratory, and by the next morning, literally within about 10 hours, we knew that uh, the, we had a DNA fingerprint, we compared it to our DNA, our DNA database, and we knew that this matched up with what we call the AIM strain. And it was about three hours later that the first victim died. So, you know, as far as the speed of identification of the strain, it, we could hardly have been faster. And what I'm going to tell you about as far as advanced genomic technologies, uh, some of them are getting a little bit faster. They're certainly getting more precise and giving us a lot more ability to understand outbreaks. But in fact, the speed was there. That was maybe one, of, it was certainly one of the most important early pieces of evidence that this was a bioterrorism event. We still didn't know about the letters. We still didn't know how uh, Mr. Stevens acquired uh, the disease. Now, that particular technology was based upon pattern matching. It's very similar to what's used by the uh, FBI and, and law enforcement today in identifying uh, criminals or, or, or sexual assaults. Uh, it's a pattern matching which, uh, when you go in front of a jury and you say, I've got a match, and uh, that almost always convicts. In fact, it's very common for, uh, for trials to go forward with nothing but DNA evidence and human identification but it just doesn't have the same weight when it comes to microbial forensics. In fact, while we uh, reported to multiple U.S. government agencies on that Friday morning that it was the Ames strain, in fact, it also matched a, another strain. It matched a strain that had come from a natural case of anthrax in Texas, and a strain that we call the Texas goat strain from 1997. And so, very quickly, once that conclusion had been reached, and I had communicated that to the federal government, uh, and in this case it was through the uh, HHS, it was through the Department of Justice, and also through the intelligence community, that, that result became uh, the takeaway message. And that was communicated all the way to the highest realms of the government, that we had a match and it was the AIM strain. Now, as an investigative tool, as an investigative conclusion, that was very important. I mean, it really did lead us in the right direction. But if we'd had to take that into court and defend that in a Fry hearing or a Daubert hearing against an adversarial system, it wouldn't have stood up. And so for the next two or three years, we continued to investigate uh, Bacillus anthracis. We developed uh, more extensive uh, genomic tools. We started doing whole genome sequencing. And we went out into nature and we sampled more isolates of Bacillus anthracis that were particularly relevant to the AIM strain, and these were from Texas, South Texas, which is where the AIM strain originated. And so over the next two or three years, we built a, a very solid uh, uh, case that would have stood up in court. Never did, but if we'd had to gone to court, I'm very confident that we would have, in fact, been able to get past the Fry and Daubert criteria. We would have been allowed to present that, that this was the AIM strain. It was a laboratory strain, 
and hence uh, it was something that came out of a laboratory, not something from nature. So sometimes in microbial forensics, you have investigative leads and you have to run with those and then when it comes time to go into court, you, you've got to go back and you've got to develop those in more detail. Now in 2011, well actually in 2010, uh, the, um, there was an earthquake in Haiti. And that earthquake was followed about eight months later by a massive outbreak of cholera. Uh, and that cholera outbreak has now killed about 10,000 people and, and caused almost a million cases of cholera. And at the time, uh, many people were saying, well, this is what happens when you have an earthquake in a third world country, cholera rises, you get uh, diseases that take off. But there's a French uh, epidemiological team that had been doing classical space-time analysis, looking at how the disease had progressed across the area. And they said, whoa, this looks like this started in one particular place. And it was affiliated with a UN peacekeeping mission that had come out of Nepal. And uh, this was not greeted well by the UN, and uh, as you might imagine. And, uh, and so there was a lot of controversy. And this French uh, epidemiological team got beat up pretty badly by people saying, oh, this just can't be the case. Well, we had an international collaboration with the, with the Danes at the Danish Technical Institute, who had a very good connection with the Ministry of Health in Nepal. And so we went and got isolates of Vibrio cholera from Nepal. And we did whole genome sequencing. And we were able to uh, identify that, in fact, that the cholera that was ra ravaging Haiti was, in fact, very closely affiliated with one particular type that come from the country of Nepal. Now, in this case, instead of uh, we were able to do this whole genome sequencing, we made a leap forward in technology so, so that we were able to use whole genome sequencing to identify the strain and then to place it into the context, into a population genetic context that was critical for understanding what it meant. You have to have that context, just like in you know, the sexual assault human identification cases, you've got to have that database to make sense over a DNA fingerprint pattern. You need to have that database to understand. And, and we had that because genome technology advanced so far and was so cheap that we were able to do that in a very timely fashion. And as a consequence, it was, it's widely accepted now, and the UN has even accepted a responsibility for that. So that attribution was based upon whole genome sequencing. We had never worked with cholera before. The cholera databases were out there. There were whole genome sequences. Uh, there became an international uh, movement to sequence more strains of cholera. We didn't trade live strains. We traded data over the internet through public databases. And so we really reached an, a, a new era where whole genome sequences could be traded electronically. The barriers that have, been, uh, have arisen over the last couple of decades for exchanging live pathogens across even across the United States, we can't do that, let alone across international borders. But electronic databases and genomes are readily exchanged. And so we never even sequenced a strain from, from uh, Haiti. Rather, we used the, uh, the data that had been generated by the Centers for Disease Control. So we went, go from uh, a simple pattern matching in 2001 to 2011. We're doing whole genome sequencing, and we're putting that in large electronic databases. Another aspect of these uh, whole genome sequencing is, is we now understand the, uh, the evolution of these genomes in such a way that we can put a real time stamp on it. It's what we call a molecular clock. And so in the case of the Haitian outbreak, we were able to say that the Haitian cholera ha had an ancestor 
that lived in Nepal about six months before. And so this type of analysis wasn't possible in the pre-genomics area that we were in in 2001, but now we can actually put real time and we can put confidence intervals around that. These types of studies are being done regularly. We routinely will do, you know, uh, four or 5,000 genome studies in my laboratory. The FDA, which is one of the most advanced forensic uh, tracking groups in the world, now has databases on the order of 100 to 130,000 different foodborne pathogens like E. coli and salmonella. And so this is so routine and the methodologies are so great. If we would have another anthrax outbreak or you name it, you name the pathogen, synthetic or natural, we would be able to tackle that with genomics in a way that would be unbelievable. Uh, we would be able to put that in the context over time and we'd be able to put a timestamp on it. Now, the problems that we have there clearly have to do with creating the, uh, the databases, the population genetic databases, because in the last 10 years, uh, the ability to transfer uh, pathogens uh, and the ability to even store pathogens has become much more onerous. And because of that, that is the limiting factor, is building the databases to understand the context of an outbreak. Now, you can do some of that ahead of time, but a lot of that has to be done re reactive to what the situation is. I mean, we're dealing with uh, rare events here. These are not things that happen, you know, 100 or 20,000 times a year like we have with salmonella and foodborne pathogens. These are things that are very rare. We have a multitude of agents. We don't know which one's going to be used next. We can rank them. We have our lists, and then we can prepare for that. But the reality is, is we don't know what it's going to be. And even when we do know, for example, that it's, it's going to be anthrax, we didn't know it was going to be from Texas. You know, who would have guessed? Texas, right? And so uh, building those databases is very important. Now, that's where we were 10, uh, 11 years ago. I mean, we're still doing that type of analysis. But the future is actually, it, uh, it isn't that we're going to forget and stop doing that, but we also have other advances as, as the uh, genomic technologies have improved more and more. What we see is we can now sequence directly from the evidence. So we could take the microphone, so we could sequence from that. We wouldn't have to grow anthrax off of it. We could sequence <laughs> off the water. And this is what we call metagenomic analysis, where we don't grow up a pathogen. We just go directly into the environment or directly onto the surface and just generate a whole bunch of uh, sequence and then let the computers sort it out. Now, in the, uh, in the anthrax investigations, one of the most intriguing, sorry, in the amerithrax investigation, one of the most intriguing uh, uh, kind of uh, attempts at evidence related to these morphs. Uh, surely you've heard about the morphs that were present in, in the different powders. So in the, we call it the dashel powders. You know, there were, <laughs> you know, uh, physicians just love to have diseases named after them. You know, if they discover disease, it becomes Alzheimer's disease, for example. So we, now we have the dashel powders. <laughs> That's okay, we'll save Lieberman for something else. <laughs> so, so in the letters, a, a very astute microbiologist at USAMR named Pat Warsham uh, noticed, in fact, that there were minor variants. So when she plated out the powder, she could see that there was a difference in the way some of the colonies looked when they grew up. Uh, she's actually an expert at this. She had published papers on these different morphologies previously, so it wasn't like she, this is a, a totally new insight. Uh, she knew that most of these morphs were due to mutations that were stable that changed the way they grew. 
they're actually an artifact of growing Bacillus anthracis in the laboratory. You don't see them in nature. In nature, these are maladapted things that get selected out by their passages during causing diseases. In the laboratory, when you're growing up spores, sometimes you're selecting for a biology that's different. So you select for mutants, and these mutants actually have an advantage in the laboratory over the wild type that will actually cause diseases. So she saw these, she kind of knew what they were. Uh, they purified them. Uh, my laboratory then uh, grew up large amounts of DNA. These were sent to the, uh, the Institute for Genome Research, which is set up by Claire Frazier. And uh, the work there was done primarily by Jacques Revelle, a very exciting scientist. And, and what they discovered was that there were mutations that were behind these morphs. They developed assays for those, and then they went back and they screened all the evidence. Now, in this period of time, the FBI had accumulated over a thousand pieces of evidence from different laboratories, from offices, from environmental samples, and, and at least one copy of all that evidence was, was stored in my laboratory uh, for about six or seven years. Now, they screened those, and, and in doing that, they were able to focus back on a single flask. This is the famous RMR 1029 flask which had all the morphs that were seen that had been characterized in the, in the letters. And so what this said was, in fact, uh, the, that the cultures had heterogeneity, and that heterogeneity could be used as a signature to identify the source, could be used for attribution. And so this really was a very forward-thinking approach to attribution. Before this, we'd always said, oh, we can only look at the dominant type of the genome that's in a particular uh, colony or a particular prep. In this case, it said, well, look, there's some minor ones in there, too, and those minor ones might be a signature that allows us to go back. Now, uh, that research, or, and I call it research for that investigational uh, evidence, uh, was highly criticized by the National Academy of Sciences study that went back and looked at the Amerithrax investigation. They said, you didn't understand the biology, you didn't do the proper controls, you didn't sample the evidence correctly. There's lots of criticisms there. but. But nevertheless, as an investigational tool, it was very powerful. It would not have held up in court. Clearly, we would have had National Academy members, scientists from across the world, lining up to testify against the way that that was used. But today, we could do it differently. We know that this heterogeneity inside of the samples can be used as a signature, and we can use this metagenomic approach where we can go in and sample everything and just sequence it directly we're able to look at the entire, you know, 5.5 megabases, million bases of DNA, and look at the variation at all those positions and develop a, a signature for a particular powder, compare that to a particular source, and so that this heterogeneity via metagenomic analysis would be much more powerful. We used this a couple of years ago to sequence the anthrax genomes from Russian victims of the 1979 Sverdlovsk accident. 1979, the Russians had an accident in one of their spore production facilities, killed about 60 people of anthrax. Uh, we had gotten formalin-fixed tissues from some of these victims, and we were able to go in and sequence the entire uh, material, 99% of which was the human victim's own DNA, but 1% was the anthrax DNA, and we reconstructed then, uh, in, in a computer, reconstructed the genome of the Soviet battle strain, which is called E36. So now we know what the Russians, the Soviets were using. We have a, in our database, we have a marker for the Soviet biological weapons program. If we ever see that genome again in an event around the world, 
people start thinking, you know, state-sponsored and, and, and try to establish this link uh, back to the uh, Soviet program. So very important is this difference between investigational evidence, investigational tools, and those that would be accepted in court. And obviously the court uh, the court-based uh, genomic analysis has to be much more highly validated and it's going to be uh, subjected to an adversarial system, whereas investigational tools can be developed much more readily. Now, <clears throat> there's only a few examples of this, and one of those examples I'm going to tell you about of where we've taken genomic data in a microbial investigation to court involved uh, a U.S. District Court case in, in just here in 2017. Is a murder trial. There were 20 counts of second-degree murder, and involved the uh, the head of a uh, at the New England uh, compounding pharmacy. So this is a, a compounding pharmacies or drug companies, small drug companies that make up drugs. In this case, they're making up batches of steroids, uh, in particular for people who had back pain. But in the process of doing this, they had, had badly contaminated their, their steroids with a fungus. And this fungus normally is not pathogenic. It lives in the soil. But when you inject it directly into your spinal fluid with steroids, which inhibit, inhibit your immune system, voila. So there were over 700 cases of fungal infections associated with these and, and on the order of 60 deaths. They were charged with 20 deaths that could be uh, tied to it. Now, what we did, so fungal genomes are more complex than bacterial genomes, which are more, more complex than viral genomes. So these back, these, this fungus is a fungus that's called uh, exocerohylum. hilum. I'm sure that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean much more to you than it means to me. It's a soil bacteria, it's soil fungus. So exocerohylum hilum, though, has a genome that's about it's about, oh, about eight times bigger than the Bacillus anthracis genome. And so that's, that's a significant challenge for genomics. It's not as bad as sequencing the human genome, but it's certainly more of a challenge. So what happened was is we sequenced uh, the whole genomes and compared those for, for isolates of the fungus that came out of victims, people who died, and compared to that to, to isolates that we found inside of the drugs, the steroids, and when we did that, we found there were almost no differences at all. They were nearly identical with each other. And when we compared that to other isolates, in fact, they were dramatically different. So it really did look like there was a tie. So this evidence, uh, it was pretty meager, actually, by my standards. I've testified a few times for the defense challenging DNA evidence in my day. But in this particular case, I would have I had a field day, I think. Uh, because we didn't have the population genetics. But nevertheless, uh, it was not challenged uh, by the courts. This is U.S. District Court in Boston. It was not challenged uh, by the defense attorneys, at least not successfully. So that evidence went into court and was part of the evidence that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office used. So this was in federal court. And so you would expect that, in fact, the Daubert criteria would have been brought in for new science. But it wasn't. So we have an example here where microbial forensic DNA evidence has made it into the courts and was successfully used. Now, the, uh, uh, the, the CEO of this company was not convicted of murder, but he was convicted of fraud and racketeering and uh, was sentenced to about nine years in jail. So, uh, so this difference between investigational and, and judicial is very important, and, and it's important that we, we know what we're looking at when we go into this. Now, I thought I would just finish up with uh, some observations or recommendations. So I have really like five recommendations. Some of these we've heard already, 
Some of these seem so obvious that I don't call them rec recommendations as much as, as observations. So first off, in, in microbial forensics, um, most of our big advances in genomics were things that were developed in, in other sciences. We're taking advantage of faster computers, we're taking advantage of better sequencers, and we're putting that into a microbial forensics context. We're not inventing the science, but we're using it. Uh, part of this is we have to be able to use, uh, use public health investigations of natural disease outbreaks. So uh, we aren't gonna get to practice on, on the next event ahead of time, because we don't know what it is. But we can practice upon other public health outbreaks and so it's important that we, we look at things, uh, we go and look at uh, disease outbreaks when they occur and, you, and learn from that. Uh, we have to rely upon the public health infrastructure. You know, we can't build enough microbial forensic laboratories to do this, but we can uh, leverage the public health infrastructure to do it. In the, uh, the Zero Hylum case in the compounding pharmacies, that work was in conjunction with the CDC. Uh, this was a Department of, of Justice investigation as well as the FDA, uh, but they didn't use the NVAC in that case. They used the CDC and they used my laboratory because we're experts in fungal diseases. We have to capitalize upon scientific advances in other fields because we just don't have, it, other fields are going to move much more quickly than we can in microbial forensics. And so for the last 16 years in genomics, I would say that we were riding the coattails of the, uh, the human genome and other efforts, and even the, in the area of, of public health and molecular epidemiology of foodborne pathogens, we're learning a lot from following on those, so it's very important to capitalize upon those. Foreign engagement is critical. Most of these diseases that we're really worried about are not active in the United States. Uh, for example, right now in Madagascar, there's a, a major inhalational pulmonary plague outbreak going on there. It's a major public health. We have people there who are interacting with those folks in the Institute Pasteur in Madagascar, and we have folks who are collecting samples and we're, and we're doing that type of analysis so that we learn how to do this for a, for a pathogen that doesn't cause disease very often in the United States. Finally, I'll just echo uh, what I heard this morning, especially from Jerry, that uh, you know we have to have infrastructure in the United States to do this. Uh, you know, the U.S. government uh, has probably six or seven agencies that are involved in microbial forensics, DHS, FDA, CDC, DOJ, Department of Defense, USDA, the intelligence communities. All of those agencies have some capacity in microbial forensics. Uh, the NVAC is very important to the Department of Justice and for many of our biodefense things. Uh, but it's not one-stop shopping. Uh, it's not like everything that has to do with microbial forensics goes to the NVAC, as critical as it is. So it's important to realize that this is a dispersed effort as well as needing that uh, one critical piece. It's kind of like saying, oh, we're gonna have a uh, agency that's responsible for computers. Well, everybody has computers, everybody writes software. And so microbial forensics is going to be in all these different agencies. They all have their own unique mission and aspect of how they use microbial forensics. And so uh, when you talk about leadership, I think what leadership is needed there is coordination, harmonization. It's important that those different agencies and different groups who are all trying to tackle similar problems, but maybe for different purposes, are in fact interacting in a way so that the entire government moves forward. As you know, uh, when you uh, have these different agencies that are doing this, you end up in this situation where uh, you have uh, cooperation, but you also have competition. 
and the balance between that cooperation and competition across those agencies is something that has to be managed so that it gets the best of both worlds, right? Competition's good, but only as far as it stimulates the entire effort across the government. So uh, there's a five recommendations. I'll give you those in writing later if you want. Be glad to answer any questions that you might have. Well, Dr. Kim, thank you very much for that uh, outstanding presentation. And uh, more importantly than that even, thank you for all of your good work over these many years. And uh, uh, your leadership and uh, your vision for what could be and can be, uh, your commitment is just uh, sets a standard for and for that, we're very grateful. Um, let me just start by asking a similar question to what I asked the first panel. You, maybe arguably more than anybody else in the country now, um, can relate to the Amerithax uh, investigation and the improvements in forensics and the extraordinary progress in some ways we've made. But could you contrast in a more uh, specific way that investigation and how one would, in, would, would, would develop today? What would be the two or three most significant differences that we would recognize and, and rely upon uh, were the same situation to occur today? Well, uh, I may start in a place you don't expect, but one of, the, one of the aspects that's different today than it was in 2001 was public health, uh, law enforcement, and the intelligence community talked to each other. That was not true in 2001. I think I was the only person in the U.S. who was talking to all three. <laughs> and uh, that did change. Uh, I think there were some very hard times early in the investigation, and uh, clearly, as you said, building the DHS airplane uh, while it was flying uh, was was uh, was hard, you know, uh, and uh, so I think, you know, when we changed government in such a massive way, that was difficult and that had to sort out. Uh, I think we would all be much, people maybe didn't realize how dysfunctional that situation was in 2001, or maybe you in particular did, <laughs> but uh, it's a much better place and we're much better off, and so uh, I think people will be pleased with that. Now, that doesn't say that that task is done. It, it's a continual process. People are people, and you have to continually keep them cooperating and, and working together. Uh, I think that uh, we would instantly use genomics, and we would use advanced genomic techniques. You know, all these living organisms we're talking about have genomes, and it is a wealth of information, and we have a universal technology that can be applied to all of them. Now, the science between all of those organisms is a little bit different, and it's important to have subject area experts who know that and know how to interpret those patterns, know what the confidence we have in those conclusions. But I think that we would instantly jump in and use advanced genomics. The NBFAC has an excellent genomics team. Uh, if it was in their purview, in other words, not a uh, something that was maybe better suited for the military or the intelligence community, it would definitely be going through the NBAC. And I think we would be pleased with um, results in the way they handled that analysis. Um, I worked with them a lot, so I, I know I know their people and I know their capabilities very well. And we could go off on a whole other tangent about the space station and stuff like that, which is very interesting. Um, I think um, 
you know, the traditional approaches to forensics are critical. You know, uh, DNA technology and microbial forensics is going to be a piece of this, uh, but the traditional uh, type of investigative approaches are, are uh, the backbone of a microbial forensics investigation. You know, if we had gotten a DNA fingerprint, for example, off one of those letters, uh, it would have been an amazing piece of evidence. Uh, and with new technologies and genome sequencing, you know, it might be possible to do that. Uh, I'm sure the FBI won't agree to this, but I think that some of the, uh, that the evidence from the Amerithrax case could be reanalyzed and we would learn a lot from it. And, uh, you know, the reason that the, uh, the Bureau will not agree to that is because they don't want to resurrect a, a zombie out of, out, of, out of the grave, right, and uh, set the, uh, the conspiracy theories, theorists loose once again. So uh, I think politically uh, that's not going to happen, but from, a, from a, a technical standpoint, we would learn a lot if we could do that. Well, that's a very good answer. Let me ask you this. It, it, with limited resources and obviously a, a whole array of challenges we face, how would you prioritize where the country needs to make its critical investments now? How do you, as you look at forensics going, say, to the next decade, and you had the magic wand to decide where resources and leadership would be put, how would you characterize the prioritization of that effort? Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, and it depends upon how limited, uh, I, you know, I. I really believe that law enforcement and public health have to be uh, solid partners in this. And I think, uh, and I don't have the answer to this, but I'll, I'll just say that we have to figure out how to make sure that they're engaged partners. Uh, you know, it's much better than it was 16 years ago, uh, but it, it's clear that uh, public health, uh, they don't want to do some of the things that law enforcement want them to do as far as evidence tracking, you know, the way they handle things. Uh, and so somehow making sure that the, the, uh, the forensics capabilities are engaged in public health. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to put the money or who the leadership should be there, but I think that that's a very important aspect. I think uh, also having the microbial forensics well engaged with traditional uh, forensics. You know, the NBAC is in, in Dietrich, uh, the FBI crime lab is in Quantico, and that's due to the politics related to the U.S. Marine Corps as I understand it. And if there was a way actually to do that where we had the best of all those worlds, uh, making sure that those were engaged uh, it, it, or taking steps to make sure those are engaged. And the Bureau might actually say that they are, uh, but no doubt it could be better. Well, you mentioned NBAC a couple of times now, and obviously there's a lot of concern about the future of NBAC and what happens there. Mm -hmm. In your view, if NBAC were to close, would we have the infrastructure, would we have the capacity to deal with the many challenges we're facing without it today? Uh, we would respond partially. I mean, in 2001, we did respond. Uh, you know, we took advantage of the Department of Defense's laboratories. Uh, a lot of national, uh, national laboratories stepped forward. Uh, the country really did step forward to tackle something that was unexpected. Uh, would they do it as well, uh, in a, as well as in a coordinated fashion as having an impact? I would say no. I mean, uh, the country needs that type of infrastructure for those types of events, and uh, you, it's not going to 
uh, be it's like I said, it's not one stop shopping. I mean, we have lots of other U.S. government agencies, who are and state agencies even who are pursuing microbial forensic programs, but for certain types of things, it's really the only place that we have in BSL four type forensic analysis under a chain of evidence and in, in a fashion that we'd be able to take to court. You mentioned uh, one of somewhat of a surprising aspect. Your first answer was that that you thought coordination would be better today than it was 16 years ago. Um, are you satisfied? Uh, an NBAC comes to mind as I think of the lack of coordination, the lack of agencies taking responsibility. How would you characterize the overall level of coordination and cooperation today? Um, give me a specific, uh, like between the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security or? Well, just as it, as it deals with forensics, let's say, and, yeah. and the degree to which you think cooperation and coordination is necessary. Are we, are we meeting the, the necessary standard by which you think we can do it effectively? We're, we're moving there. And uh, I'll step aside from the NBAC and talk about the FDA and the CDC for just a second. So uh, those two agencies actually have overlapping missions. Uh, the uh, CDC is responsible for foodborne outbreaks if you have it. The FDA is responsible for it if it's in the food, okay? So they both are trying to track microbes that are causing disease and to attribute those. And in some cases, those go to court or at least uh, go to a settlement where you know, major corporations have major losses. So th that really is a microbial forensics. I would say there that there was a turf war that existed until recently and that in fact, uh, the FDA uh, provided the ultimate leadership to move forward in this area of genomic tracking. Uh, some very insightful people there uh, set up a microbial tracking system, moved it forward, but were very careful not to step on the CDC's toes. And now the CDC is on board and doing it too. Okay, so it, it really took almost some shaming, frankly. Uh, and uh, for maybe 15 years, I would have been trying to get the CDC to take up advanced uh, genomic technology for tracking their diseases. It was the FDA who finally got them to do that. So there's an example where now they're totally cooperating. They're using the same uh, data sets. They're using the National Center for Bioinformatic Information, which is part of the NIH, as a repository for that. And so there is excellent uh, cooperation and collaboration there. It wasn't easy. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure there's not a magic wand for this. It's going to take leadership and it's going to take uh, leaders who try to motivate and work across uh, these silos in government. I, I explain the U.S. government to foreigners. I say, well, we really don't have one government. We've got all these agencies and each one is bigger than your government, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and they kind of act like that, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it takes some really enlightened and uh, selfless people make that happen. Last question. The degree to which we focus on anthrax is certainly understandable. There are some who argue that some agencies focus too exclusively on anthrax. And as we look at the microbial forensics and the need and the, the broad uh, issues that are out there, that, uh, that, uh, that we really ought to broaden our focus some. To what extent are we too focused on anthrax at the expense of others? Well, uh, I don't think that we're, uh, certainly anthrax isn't the only thing we look at. And 
you know, the priority lists are set up based upon uh, risk assessment. We know that those are not perfect, uh, but they're really the best that we have. Uh, in, in one sense, doing it really well on a small number of, of high-risk pathogens prepares us for jumping to the unknown. I mean, the unknown is massive. You know, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of potential uh, problem agents out there. Uh, there's no way that we can cover all of them. Uh, we need to cover uh, ones that are different from each other, you know, ones that are involved with uh, airborne, that are vector, that are water, that are food. We need to have examples of all of those uh, in our experience, in our legacy, in order to be prepared for the unknown. Uh, and maybe it will, in fact, be anthrax again, or plague, or tularemia, or smallpox. You know, those are ones that we are uh, working very actively on. So it isn't, you know, the probability that's going to be anthrax is less than 10%. But what's number two? Well, it may be 5%. And so you just go on and on. You still have to work off of that risk assessment, but definitely not, not a single agent. Thank you very much, Dr. Thanks, Doctor. <coughs> You've taken me into a, what we used to call a brave new world. So I, I just got a, a few questions. Um, what? Um, tell me. Uh, well, I'm going to go back to what you said about the increasing uh, interagency cooperation. Wh why do you think that's so? What What happened in between um, uh, 2001 and now? I think it was patriotism. I think people actually realized that they had to get past their petty little fights and do something good for the country. That's a great answer. It was I didn't expect it, but I'm inspired by it. And I and I, I uh, you're a man of science, so I believe you're right. <laughs> so it's uh, said based on observation. So um, for a uh, a genuine layperson like myself, what what are the practical uh, consequences significant of this increased capacity you have to do some of the things you've described, genomic sequencing, et cetera. Is it, is, does it just help in, in, the, in the area we're talking about with uh, attribution? D uh, does it enable us uh, uh, to develop uh, more e um, easily, I hesitate to use the word, but um, medical countermeasures, for instance? What, what's the significance of it? Yeah, I mean, the genomic analyses uh, move over into diagnostics immediately. You know, so my, my institute, I'm an executive director of an institute, probably 70% of it focuses upon diagnostic of common diseases. You know, we use these same methodologies to track C. difficile infections in hospitals, uh, flesh-eating bacteria, group A strep, you know, we've spotted clusters of those, all of those with the goal of identifying the source and then eliminate, eliminating them. So this ability is, is actually not being driven by microbial forensics. In 2001 to 2005, uh, we had a lot of money and we had a lot of motivation to sequence genomes in a way that nobody had ever done. In that time period, we were the cutting edge. In anthrax research with the, the Institute for Genome Research and then the, the analyses we were doing, nobody was doing it better in the world. Uh, that's not true anymore. We're followers now. I mean, the places where these major breakthroughs are occurring are in foodborne pathogens. I would say the Ebola virus outbreak was, uh, was an amazing demonstration of the way you can deploy genomics into a theater or into real time. And so- uh, who, who did it then? Uh, th that was interesting. You know, I, 
I will say that I think that the, the Brits are better at this than we are. And I think that they've deployed it in their public health system sooner. Uh, they're better at genomics. Uh, they had, uh, they had, they have this little instrument that we call the MinION out of Oxford Manipur. You know, a lot of the sequencing technology that we have was matured in the United States, but in fact, it was developed in England. And so uh, they also, this is a sad statement for uh, our educational system, but th they're mathematically more gifted than we are. We have more people who understand math and ha are able to do uh, sophisticated modeling, and that's been very important in moving this science forward. And so the Brits were there, the U.S. Army was there, we had other folks in theater uh, using these same instruments. And so uh, it was actually a great demonstration of how you can move genomics right to the edge of an outbreak. So what, what did it enable us to do in the Ebola outbreak? Well, it allowed us to uh, track it. In other words, uh, one of the ways you control an outbreak like that is by traceback, so that you can go back and look and find where it is, find out who, who a, a somebody who is, is spreading Ebola virus, who they had contact with. This type of analysis allows you to go back. Uh, they now have gone back almost to the very tree where the original Ebola jumped from the bat over in into people. So this type of precision allows us to understand that outbreak, under, allows us to understand why this Ebola outbreak was considerably different than the previous ones. I would say that we didn't think Ebola was all that dangerous because it always killed people so fast that it burned itself out. Well, that didn't happen in this case. We, it, it, it took off and spread in a way that we hadn't anticipated, and now we're able to go back and reconstruct that using these molecular epidemiological tools. Thank you. So uh, one other thing is yeah. uh, these genomics uh, are allowing us to develop better vaccines. Uh, they're allowing us to identify particular targets. And we have a very active program in this uh, with, the, uh, with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency using genomics to en enable vaccine production. It's also allowing us to identify uh, targets for drugs. And so the genomics, uh, it, it's not just one genome anymore. We'll sequence a 1,000 genomes, look for the common targets, and be able to use those. So yeah, very important for countermeasures. That's great. Great to hear. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for your work, which is also, I would say, an act of patriotism. I just have one follow-up. I'm uh, just intrigued. You said that Ebola was this, this strain of Ebola, um, or previous strains of Ebola, killed people so fast that it burned itself out. You mean people who died before they had enough human interaction to pass it to others? Is that what you mean? Yeah, it, I didn't mean to say that it was the strain of Ebola, but the circumstances of the outbreak. And so, you know, investigators would walk into a village in, in the jungle and everybody would be dead. And, and, uh, and that had happened in, in such a way that people died so fast that, in fact, they hadn't had a chance to disperse. Whereas in this outbreak, people moved. And, and uh, you know, some got to Dallas, Texas, you know. <laughs> and so people moved. And as that started to move, then uh, that meant that uh, you didn't uh, self-contain in the outbreak. And, and so the uh, mortality and morbidity associated with this outbreak uh, was conceivable but hadn't been observed before. Okay. Anything else? So, Paul, I want to go back to the statement you made about focusing on the list of agents um, prepares us for the unknown. And there are some who would feel that doing sticking with the list actually can lull us into a false sense of security uh, or 
was complicated. Um, and then thinking about what the panel this morning told us about the advances in science and technology, um, how would, would you feel comparing those two views with the idea of sticking with the list? Well, lists are dangerous, and especially policymakers don't understand that the list is just a, a risk assessment, and 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 it's it's used for a couple purposes. That lists are used to guide funding, and they're used for regulatory compliance. And all of this, all of those who live in that world realize how ridiculous that is, right? Because we know that salmonella was used as a bio, biological weapon before anthrax was, and and how effective that was. And so, you know, lists are dangerous, and I totally appreciate that you need to be careful and recognize that that those lists are not comprehensive. So, in in that case, I totally agree. But on the other hand, you can't do everything, you know, and so you at some point you're going to have to make uh, policy management and risk assessments that tell you to focus upon some things first. And, and that's where these lists can be valuable. And I would, I would come back and say anthrax is very dangerous. Do not forget about anthrax because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible biological weapon for lots of reasons. And uh, you know, we got off as, as Jerry said this morning, you know, this, I can tell you just a couple of things that would have made this letter attack so much more effective where hundreds or thousands of people would have died. And we can all see that. We can just see that it, it wasn't as effective as it could have been from a mortality. And yet, as Jerry pointed out, you know, the impact as a terrorist weapon was immense. I mean, it changed this country in ways that we're still trying to figure out, major ways. Uh, so yeah, so uh, I think lists are dangerous, but they're almost a necessary evil that we have to deal with. I don't like the way that the lists are constructed now in the sense there's this uh, secret federal committee that gets together and decides what's on the list and what isn't. Uh, and you know, the argument is, well, there's you know, security considerations. We can't have an open debate about this. Uh, but nevertheless, the list is what it is. And, and in a sense, it's like training wheels. We're learning how to do this. And so we can prepare for the next event. So Paul is always a very eloquent summary of a complex subject. And I think for the panel at large, this whole issue of metagenomics has enormous forensic implications even beyond biodefense. We know that every bug that lives in a Superfund site adapts to the chemicals which are in the soil. So you have a fingerprint of that. Monitoring bilge discharges from ships enables us to track which microorganisms are being released out of ships in different ports and therefore capacity. But I think the fundamental issue you said is the fact that attribution does actually merge with diagnosis and prevention because I think if Agent X, the infamous Agent X does come at us, the ability to be able to sequence a genome and increasingly with predictive accuracy identify the, li the likely coding regions for the most immunogenic proteins and then identification of the epitopes within that particular protein does actually offer the opportunity to completely diversify the vaccine production base by moving us from a biological production process to chemical synthesis of epitopes, which would not only diversify the manufacturing base available, because right now we, even under the best of circumstances, we could probably produce several hundred thousand perhaps, uh, uh, so several thousands of millions, but not a billion vaccine doses of any known pathogen. 
for a population which is much larger, but if we could chemically synthesize those epitopes, and I think that's another, another frontier that we're going to have to look hard at, and I know that Pitra is also looking at that with you. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a, there are so many other technologies that are coming on. I mean, the genomics is becoming routine. It's like having an iPhone, you know, and so uh, because of that, then it's going to impact all aspects of what we're talking about. Uh, vaccine development, therapeutics development, you know, uh, molecular epidemiology, diagnostics, environmental monitoring, all that's going to be changed as, uh, as we go uh, further down this pathway because uh, genomics doesn't look like it's slowing down, or if it's slowing down, it's not slowing down much. If there is a time to ask one question, uh, to come back to your point about engaged uh, partnerships, the need for that. Uh, can you can you comment on the need for engaged um, partnership in this area on the international level? I think you referred to the example of the anthrax uh, in Russia in '79. And then we have many examples uh, going all the way back to the 30s um, in Manchuria, for example, with the um, prisoners who were also infected and so forth. So my question basically is, is there a roadmap in terms of engagement with the international community, such as Russia, Japan, China, and so forth. Uh, you know, the U.S. government has made a number of attempts to engage foreign governments. You know, the CBAP program at DITRA is an example. Uh, but the Department of Homeland Security also has had an international office. I, I guess if I was going to make a, a specific recommendation here, uh, why don't we treat international engagement like we do SBIR grants? So in other words, you have to put 2% of your budget into an international collaboration. Uh, I can tell you the best people in the world for understanding tularemia are the Swedes, okay? Absolutely the best, you know. The best place to study plague in humans is Madagascar. You know, we have to reach out to those people if we're going to be engaged in those particular diseases. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, a patchwork that is not well coordinated and not well motivated in my opinion, uh, and we need more of that. I think that, uh, especially in the case of DITRA, you know, they have definitely political uh, uh, goals as well as the scientific goals. You know, uh, the country of Georgia has a very big U.S. presence because of DITRA, and it's a very important place for the United States from a geopolitical standpoint. And we have to realize that these international goals, we're going to have scientific goals, but they'll also have these other payoffs, including this international engagement. You know, and at this point in our history, we need to be engaged with friendly governments as well as, as ones that maybe, maybe the ones that aren't friendly can't help, but the ones that are friendly with us, we need engagement, and this is a great way to do it is by collaborating, and they all want to do it. Okay, Dr. Kahn, on behalf of the whole panel, everybody here, thank you very much. Uh, we very much appreciate you being here and your um, uh, your remarks and observations. Um, a couple things as we close out the open session. Uh, first, I want to just take a moment to thank uh, those who have provided their financial support to the panel, um, Open Philanthropy, and Ms. Jamie Yassif, who is here. I think she had to leave about an hour ago or so, but... Um, 
debt of gratitude to them and also the Hudson Institute, our fiscal sponsor. Um, done a lot to keep this uh, the panel moving forward. We appreciate it very much. Um, so now I think we're going to have a closed session. We're going to have it in here. So those of you who are on the list for the closed session, feel free to stay here. But I think we'll take a five-minute break and we'll clear the room and resume. Thanks very much. Thanks, Doctor. The rest of the uh, program closed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have. They all know whether they've made it or not. You're the best. Look at that. If you're, if you're a good senator, I'll let you have one. I've got something in my bag. I'm going to yeah, you sure? That looks really good. Hey, nice to see you. Talk to the FBI yeah. agent here. Did you talk to him? Yeah. Okay, talk to him. Because um, obviously your skill would be, your background would be very useful there. Um, you know, I could help you. I could talk to you about DOJ stuff. You know, that's a little bit less direct. Um, Security, more of the, 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 the